Do you all get a notification saying you're being recorded? Um, yep. Yes. It says you're recording. All right. I don't know if I got like a pop up or anything. No, it should just be a, probably a little thing at the top of the page. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It also tells me to avoid legal snags by informing people. So mm-hmm. none of you can sue me now. <laughs> well, for this, it was. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how the day progresses. Yeah. It was top of my mind before, so I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> All right. All right. So welcome, everyone, to episode three of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rao. Our guests today are Trevor Alexander, Greg Peterson, and Joe Trela. Remember that order. It's arbitrary, but it'll be consistent throughout the game. So can we now, going in that order, each of you just briefly state where you're Skyping in from and approximately one sentence about yourself, starting with Trevor. Hello, everyone. I'm speaking from Vancouver, BC, Canada. I work as an environmental engineer in waste heat recovery applications. Cool. Nice to see another Vancouverite, albeit from the yeah. other Vancouver. All right, Vancouver uh, North. Yes. The Alpha Vancouver. Greg? Hi, everybody. I'm uh, Greg Peterson. As of uh, about one month ago, I am in Springfield, Illinois. And also as of about one month ago, I work as a public defender. Yes. So... Greg's question is even more directly connected to me than Trevor's because Springfield, Illinois is, of course, where I grew up and where my parents still live. And Joe? Yep. This is Joe Trela. I'm uh, coming in from Antioch, California, which is about halfway as the crow flies between San Francisco and Sacramento and shows it. I work for a home warranty company. You know, it's been a good week, but today was kind of a, a downer. As we're recording this, it's when we learned Alex Trebek passed away, so... Yes, yeah. that, new, that news did break uh, earlier today. Yeah, I mean, it won't. By the time this is released, it won't be particularly a timely thing to say. Mm-hmm. But yes, a very, uh, a very sad event. All right. So this game is in four rounds: one individual and three specialists. The first round I call the three R's round. It allows me to reduce, reuse, and recycle prior material. These questions are basically a warm up, not in the sense of being easy, but just kind of you know getting your mental muscles working, getting you used to my question writing style. That they will be worth a tenth of a point as tiebreakers if necessary. This will be the only round in which all of you will answer only as individuals. So if the first person the question is directed at misses, it'll go to the second, then the third if the first two miss. So the further back you are, less of a direct shot you have, but the more time you have to think and some potential answers could get taken off the table. And we'll rotate so each of you gets to answer three times in first position, three times in second, three times in third. Then the rules will change after this round. I will explain that when it happens. And just a standard reminder, since unlike Joe, uh, Greg, and Trevor are new to this podcast, just a reminder that the content is you talking through your thinking process. So don't internalize your thinking. Feel free to share you know, interesting connections to the question or the material. We don't have to talk just for the sake of talking, though. Though I suppose you can if you want to. All right. And we will start with Trevor in first position on okay. first question. Here's our question. Oh, and I will also copy and paste it into the chat so you can look at the text if necessary. Catalina Vasquez Villalpando, Rosario Marin, Ana Escobedo Cabral, Rosa Guma Tau Tau Rios, and Jovita Carranza are five of the last six holders of which government post? Well, Jovita Carranza does stick out at me as being a Trump nominee. It wasn't a, she wasn't a secretary of anything. Uh, I think Linda McMahon was the small business hero. I think I will go with the director of the NIH. All right, that's a, a good guess. I feel like back in like episode 
two, there was a question about the NIH director, Nora Volkov, based on the fact she was the great-granddaughter of Leon Trotsky or something like that. But that's not the correct answer here. I'll pass it to Greg. I'm completely lost here, so I'll first lady of Mexico. All right. I guess he used the logic there, but I'll pass it to uh, Joe now. Okay. Could you put the names back up again? Uh, they should be in the chat window. Oh, hang on. Let me see if I can find it. Sorry. Oh, there it is right there. Duh. Okay. I am going to guess, I will guess First Lady, that uh, is the wife of the governor of Puerto Rico. All right. Yeah, I feel like at least one of the recent uh, governors of Puerto Rico or, yeah, was a woman. But, um, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have to list off the top of my head. But, yeah, I thought that Trevor would be at a market disadvantage here. But he actually got <laughs> closest of, of any of you, noting that it was, yeah, a political uh, appointee within the U.S. government. And the reason I thought he would be at disadvantage is because he's the only one of us who couldn't just pull out his wallet and see these names. Uh. They are, they are on the dollar bills that you all carry around because these women were all treasurer of the United States. Huh. Okay. Yep. Yes. I would not have guessed that. <laughs> yeah. Since, since uh, I think, mid-20th century, the post has always been held by women. But for whatever reason, recently it's been held almost exclusively by Hispanic women. All right. Next question starts with Greg in first position. Which Best Picture Academy Award winner has largely the same plot as Terrence Radigan's play, Ross. Hmm. So I've heard of Terrence Radigan, but I don't know the play at all. So what could Ross be? Could Ross be like the Antarctic Explorer, for instance? So would there be any Best Picture winners that are about... Hmm, no, because the, the one with uh, James Franco or whatever sawing off his arm, that was mountaineering rather than... Antarctic, and I also don't think he won. I'm going to completely punch. I'm going to say Harvey. All right. That, yeah, wasn't uh, actually a Best Picture winner, but uh, if you don't have the list memorized, you just have to guess, so you get <laughs> And uh, big surprise, but I don't. <laughs> All right, Joe? Okay, uh, Ross. Uh, let's see. Paris again. I was an English playwright. And not much because they're credit, and I know <laughs> only because he appeared in a Monty Python skit. Not himself, but I think it was John Cleese playing him. Ooh, um, I'll just say Chariots of Fire. All right. If I see your logic there, good guess. Uh, not correct. Trevor? Okay. I seem to recall you writing a quiz with this as a question, but for the life of me, I cannot remember. <laughs> My first thought that came to mind was Marty, but I'm pretty sure that was based on a Patty Chayefsky screenplay. And I feel like it was more recent than that. So I will go with Rain Man. All right. Yeah, that, that's the recycle part of the three R's is my using questions I've written before. <laughs> but yeah, this play was about a real life individual who was also the subject of a Best Picture Oscar winner. The play actually included a part of his life that isn't covered in the movie, the part where he enlisted in the Royal Air Force under the pseudonym Ross in order to avoid kind of the public attention from his earlier military exploits. His name was T.E. Lawrence and the film was called uh, Lawrence of Arabia. All right, next question, we'll start with Joe in first position. Appropriately, Michael Jordan owns an auto dealership in Durham, North Carolina, that sells which company's cars? Okay, appropriately, Durham, North Carolina, which companies? Uh, let's see. Let's see, there's Space Jam, there's Nike, Swoosh. I'm trying to think of anything that would fit with, let's see, Chicago Bulls. 
Birmingham Barons. Chrysler? Good guess, but not correct. Uh, not Trev- Baron. Um, so something that comes to mind is Air Jordans. And I may be way off base, but for whatever reason, I have in my mind that Chevrolet Air is a thing. So I'll go with Chevy. All right. Yeah, that doesn't ring any bells for me. That doesn't yeah. mean it's not the case, but not correct here. Greg? Born and raised a Bulls fan and absolutely lost here. Yeah, Buick. Uh, yeah, so the I actually went to the website of this dealership, and they uh, they refer to their overall staff and sales team as Team 23, which is of course the number most associated with Michael Jordan. And so to get to get to the answer, though, you have to take that number and think a little bilingually. What do you get if you translate the numbers two and three into a foreign language? De toi, vingt-trois. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this case, you have to think Japanese. Nissan. Oh. Uh, okay. Yeah, Nissan was the answer there, and we'll start with Trevor in first position on the next question. R.J. Stern, a wide receiver featured on the most recent season of Netflix's Last Chance You, is the grandson of which fantasy author, once revered as a feminist icon whose reputation has been posthumously tarnished by allegations of sexual abuse from her daughter. It is now clear this woman enabled and may have facilitated the predatory actions of her husband, NAMBLA member, and convicted child molester Walter H. Breen. Yeah, I did uh, read about this recently. I think, if I recall correctly, she wrote The Mists of Avalon. That might be off, but I'm pretty sure the name is Marion Zimmer Bradley. Okay, yeah, you didn't need the question text there. And yes, she is the author of the Dark Over series and The Miss of Avalon. And her name is Marion Zimmer Bradley. Or was, yeah. So yes, that's correct. The first, I think that's the first correct answer of the game. And we'll go to Greg in first position on the next question. So back in episode five of this podcast, I gave what was at the time a complete list of all of the Super Bowl winning quarterbacks who share an alma mater with a U.S. president. On January 20th, which quarterback will I have to add to that list? Uh, so Biden, assuming it doesn't get fully crazy, would be inaugurated there. He's from Delaware. I'm trying to think if Joe Flacco has a Super Bowl and or did Joe go to university. He went to Delaware Law. I think he went there. I'm going to say Joe Flacco. That is the correct answer. Very good. And yes, the University of Delaware has now joined, I think in that episode, I I discussed Stanford, Navy, Michigan, and uh, Miami of Ohio as being the four universities that had graduated both a U.S. president and a Super Bowl winning quarterback. And, you know, soon Delaware will be added to the list. All right. uh, We'll start with Joe in first position on the next question. You may know the last four questions this round sharing the theme. So here's a question for Joe in first position. Fittingly, which Oscar winner's final on-screen appearance came in a 2015 episode of Live and Maddie? Hmm. I'm thinking I Live and Maddie. I don't even sure what that is. Um, <laughs> so Liv Ullman. <laughs> okay, I see. Uh, yeah, she well, she wasn't an Oscar winner, but I see what your what, what your guessing logic was. All right. Trevor. Uh well, I've never heard of Liv and Maddie which tends to make me think it's probably a British series. doesn't really uh, help too much. Oscar winners from Britain. Um, I think he died well before, but I'll just say John Gielgud. Okay, I see your logic there. Good guess, not correct. Greg? I'm actually on the other side here. I, I think Liv and Maddie might be like a, a Disney Channel or, or Nick kind of show. So somebody with a famous Disney connection. 
you know what, screw it. I'm just going to say the answer is archival footage of Walt Disney himself. <laughs> <laughs> I guess technically, yeah, he is an Oscar winner. In fact, the uh, most, or you know, one more competitive Oscars than anyone else. Although I was thinking more in terms of performing Oscars. But yeah, I mean, in this case, you know, I didn't bother to describe. I mean, you're right. It is a Disney Channel sitcom aimed at younger audiences. I didn't bother to describe the premise of it because that would have given a huge hint as it is about two identical twins with opposing personalities played by the same actress. And so uh, you figured it out now, Joe? Patty Duke. Patty Duke. Yes. Ah. All right. And let's keep let's keep going on that theme again. This I mean, you know, you, you don't need actual knowledge of the show to answer this, although it would certainly help. But we'll start with Trevor on this question. The first three seasons of Live and Maddie are set in <laughs> what real-life Wisconsin city that, although home to a mere 25,000 or so people, is of particular interest to trivia buffs? Huh. Well, most Wisconsin cities I know are quite a bit larger than that, or I assume Milwaukee is. Huh. What would be important to trivia buffs? I will just guess uh, the great town of Trivia, Wisconsin. <laughs> That's a good guess. I, I like I like how you think, but uh, not correct here, Greg. I'm wondering. This feel that feels like fewer people than I believe live in my answer. But I I'm there's two big trivia marathons that happen over the radio in Wisconsin. One at my alma mater at Lawrence University, but the other one Stevens Point. I know that Appleton, Wisconsin's got. 60 or 70,000 people at least. So I'll say Stevens Point. And that is the correct answer. Very good. Yeah. It's home to the WWSP, which runs what's billed as the world's largest trivia contest. And WLFM runs one that's better. All right. If you want to sue him, it's his name is Greg Peterson. <laughs> All right. I'll start with Greg in first position on the penultimate question of this round. Again, keeping with the Live and Maddie theme, the title of every episode of Live and Maddie contains what word picked by executive producer Betsy Sullinger to honor her favorite football team, the Pittsburgh Steelers? Huh. Um, I'm trying to think if I can come up with any sort of like Steelers associated word that's also at the same time common enough as much as I would love the idea of them incorporating the word Roethlisberger into every episode title um I'll, I'll say yellow good guess uh, not correct Joe hmm yeah um I mm, yeah I was thinking about that I am going to go back to the 70s, and I'm going to say terrible. Okay, I see that. Yeah, uh, the terrible towel is their thing that fans wave. Good guess, but not correct. Trevor? Well, I didn't have a clue, but Joe saying the word terrible made me think of Mean Joe Green, who I think was a stealer. So I will say mean. Okay, yeah. In this case, the, the word in every title is also the name of the central family of the show, a name that was picked in honor of the family that owns the Pittsburgh Steelers and has owned them for several generations. Yeah, and uh, the actress Rooney Mara is a scion of that family and also of the, the Mara family, which owns the Washington Giants or the New York Giants, and it is Rooney. All right, and now the last question of this round uh, for the rules change, and it will start with Joe in first position. So let's just uh, finish off the Liv and Maddie connected questions here. <laughs> The youngest sibling in the Rooney family on that show was played by a rising Disney Channel star of Asian descent who just so happens to be the grandson of what famous figure? 
There are multiple conflicting accounts of this figure's early life, but according to Wikipedia, he was born in 1914 and initially given the name Namgyal Wangdi. His exact date of birth is unknown, although he is said to have celebrated May 29th as his birthday. Hmm. Okay. So it's figure 1914, so... Six... Hmm. That wouldn't be it. Not sure where that name would have come from. Uh, yeah, way too early to be at. Um, 96 right now, so... No, it wouldn't be that either. <laughs> okay. <sighs> okay, based on the age and everything, I am going to because I, I and there's a documentary about this and there is an actual person who is responsible for that the dish uh, i'm gonna guess general so okay i like that yeah it's a nice uh, outside of the box guess and that is based on a real historical figure although i think he was maybe a little before the 20th century mm. much not 100 certain on that but good guess not correct trevor um well based on the fact that the birth date isn't known for sure. That makes me think this person was probably born possibly in a more rural setting, like non more nondescript uh, upbringing. And I know that Mao Zedong was born along those lines, although I don't actually know what year or what decade he was born in, but I will go with Mao. Okay, good guess. Yeah, my guess, just based knowing he died in the 70s, my guess yeah. would be one slightly earlier, but I'm not certain of that. But yeah, good guess. Greg? A lot of roads in on this one, and I, I can't find myself taking any of them. I can't name a male Asian Disney Channel star. My only thought here is that Wang Di looks like I, I thought that was imperial in some way, but Nam Gyal to me looks Tibetan. So the problem here is that all of the Tibetan people I can actually name are very definitely not having children. So, frankly, I, I don't even have a, a good guess on this. I'm out. All right, you're passing on that? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, I, yeah, I generally tell people to always, you know, make a guess. But, yeah, if you're not anywhere close, then, yeah, this isn't one of the cases where guessing Smith is going to be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, though. <laughs> yeah, so um, you are right about this person being ethnically Tibetan, at least according to the most recent research, although generally he is associated with a different ethnic group. And yeah, so I said he celebrated his birthday on May 29th. Do any of you know which notable event happened on May 29th, 1953? Yeah, okay, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have probably been the first scaling of Mount Everest, successful. Yep. Oh, somebody coming back down oh. afterwards. Tenzing Norgay. Tenzing Norgay. Yeah. yes. Oh, well done. Nice. All right. So at the end of that round, I think, let's see, Trevor got the Marion Zimmer Bradley and, okay, that's it. And Greg got the Joe Flacco and Stevens Point. Yes? Yep. So, all right. So that looks like scores are Trevor 0 0.1, Greg 0 0.2, and Joe 0, 0.0. Barn burner. <laughs> yes. And of course, in the overall outcome, this will matter very little, so no need to stress out about any of those. And so now... Stress we'll... out anyway. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, certainly not against the rules, so sure. Go ahead. Yeah, for those listening, Joe is currently <laughs> literally on fire. <laughs> yes. Like that, that movie... Everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like that movie, Portrait of a Joe on Fire. So... 
We're now entered the three main rounds of the game, starting with round one, the previous one I called round zero. So this will be round one, the not all that hard round. In this round and all successive rounds, each of you will get three specialist questions related to the categories you've provided. The standard caveats not intended to be a fair comprehensive test of your knowledge of them. The questions may relate directly or obliquely. Right now, I won't reveal anyone's category, so they'll probably become evident over the course of the game. So the twist is that before you can answer your specialist question, your opponents will get to work together to try and steal the points from you. You'll only get a chance to answer for points if your opponents miss. I might pass the question over to you without telling you whether your opponent got it right, in which case, for game theory purposes, you should just assume they got it wrong, because if they got it right, you're not getting points anyway. I may, in some cases, give you a bonus question if your question is stolen from. These are irregularly sprinkled throughout the game. They're just like an element of chance added to it. And they give you know people who get stolen from a chance to show off a bit of knowledge and give listeners a few more questions to enjoy. And yeah, so these questions are not all that hard. They'll, they're intended they're intended to be the easiest of the game, although we'll see how they play. Knowing that all of you are kind of seasoned quizzers, I and the last couple episodes in this season were maybe a, a little toward the easier side, so I kind of upped the difficulty a bit on this one. Uh, uh, you're, you're too kind. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. <laughs> and now and for the rest of the game, the points will go to both stealers when there is a steal, even if only one knows the answer. All right, so we'll begin now with Greg and Joe to steal from Trevor. In an essay published in The New Yorker in 2001, Malcolm Gladwell wrote, The Fred Soper that we needed, in retrospect, was a man of more modest ambitions. But of course, Fred Soper with modest ambitions would not be Fred Soper. His epic achievements arose from his fanaticism, his absolutism, his commitment to saving as many lives as possible in the shortest period of time. For all the talk of his misplaced ambition, there are few people in history to whom so many owe their lives. So Gladwell's piece is primarily about the usage of what substance championed by Fred Soper. Swiss chemist Paul Hermann Mueller won the 1948 Nobel Prize in Physiology Medicine for discovering the substance's humanitarian applications. Okay, well, I don't feel so bad for not knowing who Fred Soper is, given that he's, you know, essentially the, the center of the question. Yeah, humanitarian. I, th- I thought Paul Mueller, I, no, no, he's way too late to be germ theory. So we know from the question that the the substance that we're talking about here is it wasn't discovered recently like we knew about it but we didn't know it was useful or didn't know it was useful this way mm, okay so i was thinking ddt for a moment but it's something that might not have been helpful uh, in the long yeah. run uh let's see uh, physiology useful some something that like purifies water or something or is that still just you boil it? Yeah, I think boiling would do it. Physiology. So, wouldn't, yeah, it wouldn't be Freon either. No. Um, think of the things that didn't turn out so well. <laughs> like an anesthetic of some flavor? Ether could be. Back there, 1800. Yeah, ether's way, way back there. But something like... Uh, Nitrous. Yeah, not, not morphine, but... Well, yeah, not morphine, but something like... Uh, let's see. Digits. Oh, oh. Hmm. Could be warfarin? Because that started out as a rat poison, and then uh, somebody tried to commit suicide with it, and it didn't kill them, but it did unclot their blood a lot. So, Oh. Mm-hmm. And you think that could be potentially dating back to the 1940s? I think that was, yeah. That is miles ahead of anything I have, and you have a specific non-humanitarian application that it had first. I really like that as an answer. Okay. Want to go with that? Let's do that. Okay. Warfarin. 
All right, yeah. If I if I swivel my chair around, I'm basically, you know, I don't want my face to be visible during deliberations because it might leak information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So of course, when you're ready, when I think you're ready to lock in, I'll do the voice thing of swiveling the chair around. Mm-hmm. All right. So you locked in Warfarin. Yeah. Yes. All right, Trevor. Well, I do like Warfarin better than anything I was thinking. When you read the question, I also first seized on the idea of water purification. Then I thought activated charcoal, but I can't see anyone winning a Nobel Prize for that. Uh, I know you can also use iodine drops to purify water, but I think they're a lot closer with warfarin than I will be. So I'll just guess activated charcoal. All right, yeah, so I, I was afraid that this might be outside all of your orbits of knowledge, but I, I know for a fact that it is not outside your orbits of knowledge because Joe did in fact say it during the deliberation. The very first oh, thing no. he said, DDT. DDT. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Humanitarian application was, of course, yeah. anti-malarial. Yeah, good for everyone oh, okay. except for uh, birds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Fred Silver was basically in charge of efforts to eradicate yeah. global malaria. All right, so now, uh, to steal from Greg. The Soviet Union won 11 of the first 12 women's chess Olympiads with their sole non-victory coming when they boycotted the event because it was held in Israel. But their streak finally ended when they were narrowly defeated in 1988 and again in 1990 by which country? Note that I said country, not family. Huh. Well, hmm. well, my first thought when he says country not family is maybe the sods in saudi arabia Hmm. country yeah yeah that would make sense in chess my mind always jumps to iceland but i don't think that's this that would make sense um yeah that that makes sense the family so yeah sure sure lock in saudi arabia all right. Okay. Interesting. I don't know if that's a big chess country, but and I don't know if in those eras they would have been really letting women compete in in many things. It's <laughs> also valid. <laughs> but all right, uh, Greg. So if I'm on the right track here, it's not necessarily that a family is sponsoring things as much as these chess champions are sisters. And what springs to mind here is the Polgar family, who's dad had three daughters and trained them all from a very young age to be chess grandmasters. And I think actually behind me here, I have a book of his chess puzzles. It's just an annoyingly thick book just labeled chess. The problem is they're ethnically Hungarian and at some point they moved to the U.S. And I know at least Judith Polgar currently plays for the U.S. But I feel like I'd be just chasing my tail on that. So I'm going to lock in with Hungary. Yeah, I mean, you're basically right. This was a question. Of the four members of the team that year, three of them had the surname Polgar. They were the, the Polgar sisters. I think in, now they go by the names of what? Susan, Sophia, and Judith or Judith or whatever. But I mean, yeah. at the time, they were going by the Hungarian versions of those names. And yes, because they were playing for Hungary. That is correct. And yeah, do you know what? Uh, this would have been your bonus if you had been stolen from. Do you know what? So obviously the, the best player among them was Judith, although she's not the one who won the Women's World Championship because her father and her agreed that she would only go for the men's. So even though she was clearly the best woman chess player in the world, she never actually officially won that championship. Do you know what her peak ELO rating was? Oof. 2,600? Yeah, she actually broke 2,700. I think her peak was 2,735. Wow. Yeah. 
That came up, actually, I think a couple of years ago, I was watching an episode of Madam Secretary, which the title of the episode is the name of that Icelandic volcano, which I won't attempt to pronounce. <laughs> but, uh, you know, thank you. And, you know, they were standard in the airport because of that. And one of the characters struck up a romance with a woman who turned out to be a, a chess grandmaster. Her rating was given in it as 2735, which I think has to be an intentional homage, especially because I think that episode was written by and the, the story editor for the show is Alex Maggio, who was a three day champion on Jeopardy. So I, I, I'd imagine that the, any references like that are intentional. All right. We'll go now to Greg and Trevor trying to steal from Joe. The San Francisco 49ers have their official team headquarters in the Marie P. DiBartolo Sports Center, located in which Bay Area city that shares its name with the county where I spent approximately 75% of my undergraduate existence? Okay. Well, from start, I will tell you I am disastrous at football. So if it Likewise. turns out, okay, if it, I'm just saying, if it if it turns out that this is a thing that keeps recurring, don't assign a lot of weight to what I tell you in this okay. one. Okay. Don't they play in Santa Clara now, the new stadium? I do not have the slightest. I, I, I think they're one of those teams that no longer plays in the town with me. So I know there's San Mateo County around there, and yeah. I think Marine County. Do we remember if Yogesh went to UCLA or USC? Actually, it wouldn't matter, right? They're both in L. Oh no, he. Bay Area. I know Yogesh went to school in California, and I don't remember which school. So, assuming that it's Berkeley or LA. You're right. Next time, uh, we should be sure to uh, creep Yogesh's social media a bit more beforehand. I mean, don't look at me. I moved to his hometown <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> um, so, California counties, you've got, I think LA is its own thing. There's Marin, there's Orange, there's uh, Humboldt, but that's way up north. Do we want to just. I don't I don't think he writes this question if the sports center and the new stadium are in the same town. But I would be fine saying Santa Clara. I'm I am comfortable with that. Yeah, I, we think it's wrong, but we're going to lock in Santa Clara. All right, you locked in Santa Clara. Joe, is that right? That is correct. Oh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Yeah, the to be honest, <laughs> or, to be honest that's probably the biggest thing in, in the town. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Let's leave it at that. Yeah, the 75% wasn't a clue just to reference the fact I actually spent one year abroad, but the other three were spent at Stanford University in Santa Clara County. Which is okay. adjacent to San Mateo County. So, yeah. Okay. All right. So two points to Trevor and Greg on that. Now, Greg and Joe to steal from Trevor. The now ubiquitous nutritional labels on food packaging were introduced by the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act of 1990, one of many then-controversial policies enacted under FDA Commissioner David Kessler. In a 2003 modification to those regulations, the FDA mandated that as of January 1st, 2006, these labels must list the amount of what in our food. So this is, is this right around when they changed up the food pyramid as well, or is that a different time? I don't think that sounds would help us get right. questions. I think he's done it more than once, but okay, sounds about right. Uh, Things like calories and fat and like macros like that, those would have already been on the labels, right? Um, probably. I'm, I'm thinking it might be fat or it might be distinguishing sugar or added sugar from carbohydrates in general. Because hmm. I know there's some, I'm trying to think of what of a list of stuff on there. There's like the carbohydrates and then... Like that you know, is sugar. You got your normal, 
it's got calories. It's got calories from fat. Your recommended daily allowances. Oh, actually, that might be a calorie. Well, could be calories from fat. And then there's sugar. You know what? Actually, yeah. I'm trying to remember the old labels from back in the day. Yeah, I, I don't remember them at all. But sugar, sugar is another one of those that has like a sub. Yeah, there's like there's comp- carbohydrates, then there's sugars. I, I like your, I want to see your calories from fat, though. I think I'm, I'm thinking that might be it. Just, I'm, I'm trying to remember because that wasn't, I don't think they really distinguished it on there. There was like maybe amount of fat, but. What so about much. anything that was like really trendy, like uh, omega-3s or mm-hmm. antioxidants or anything like that? Yeah, I don't think that stuff would be mandatory because I'm trying to think, let's see what else there is. There's calories from fats, sugars. Is sugars at the top of the main box? No, cal- I think calories is, and then under that is well, calories. Well, calories and, fat. and calories and fat are almost like above the box, right? Yeah, the same way the top. ingredients are below. They're, yeah, they're, they're at the top. Calories, calories from fat, then the other breakdown of stuff, and then actual ingredient list. So, yeah, probably might be why it's what, sticking what's my What's at head. the bottom? Like protein and fiber. Protein, fiber, fiber was on there before, I think. Um, okay. Yeah. Anything else you can think of? Uh, number of servings. Oh, well, that's, yeah, I think that's already in there. I'm thinking calories from fat. I don't know if you have. I, I've got no reason to fight that, but also, you know, I, I have no memory of the labels before the change. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they didn't break it down. I remember it was something of a big thing when they made that change, because a lot of things were sugar-free, but there are full of fat calories, and now things are fat-free, but there's full of sugar calories, so... It's either calories from fat or when, amount when did, of sugar. Uh, when did like Atkins diet go huge? Nineties, early two thousands. Could this I mean, it was be, around the eighties? But yeah. Could this be somehow related to to that? Like people carb counting in like a more intensive mm, way. I see what you mean. Uh, maybe. Does it break out complex and simple, or just like total and then sugar? I think it it's total and then sugar, okay. calorie yeah carbohydrates of sugar or something like that or grams of sugar. So it's carbohydrates and then it breaks out the sugar ones from there. So yeah, it's either fat or sugar. All you need is salt, acid, and heat. You have a Netflix show. <laughs> I think most food is you know provide your own heat. <laughs> mm. I'd be willing to go with whatever you want here. Okay, I'm gonna guess I'm gonna guess fat. Calories from we fat. We want to say, okay. Calories. Not from. grams of, but calories from? Calories from fat, yeah. Okay. Calories from fat is what yeah. you're locking. Okay, yeah. That's what turned, we're locking. Yeah. Okay, I turned off my camera so I can, I want to follow along the deliberations without worrying about my non-poker face giving things to me. <laughs> so, all right, Trevor? Okay. So I'm a lot more familiar with food labeling in Canada, unfortunately. Oh, no. But if I recall correctly, it goes... Starts calories, then grams of fat, which is subdivided into saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated. And then polyunsaturated can sometimes be split into omega-3 and omega-6. And then there's protein. And then, yeah, carbohydrates, which are usually show grams of sugar, as though that's significantly different from grams of starch. And then also grams of fiber. Then below that, there's a bunch of micronutrients, vitamin A, iron, calcium. Uh, But around the 2000s, 
I do think that was kind of the height of the anti-fat craze, but it was starting to go more to pro-fat, anti-sugar at that point. So I do believe that grams of added sugar were added on at some point. I'm not exactly sure when, but I would go with that, grams of added sugar. Okay, yeah, I just... Uh, yeah, I just realized that, yeah, actually, um, these U.S.-centric questions are not are going to put, not actually going to advantage Trevor the way that they were supposed to. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you, uh, I think something Greg said was kind of the right path to go along when he asked what was trendy at that time, right? There, What was the big panic people started to worry about being in our food? And I don't know if Greg and Trevor's youth may mean that they don't remember this quite as well. Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, I'm, I'm old enough when I was going to school, I would look, you know, when, when eating breakfast in the morning, I would just obsessively, you know, just, you just look at the label because they're right in front of you. And I would read them and fat was broken down in sort of, you know, saturated, unsaturated, monounsaturated, whatever you call it. That was when I was growing up. Nowadays, if you look at it, fat is broken down in a different way. Right. There's something listed under fat that never used to be when I was a kid. It's called trans fat. Oh, oh that's absolutely what it Of course. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Should have thought of that one. Feeling we walked silly. past the door without knocking. Mm. All right. Trevor and Joe now to steal from Greg. The 1965 musical Do I Hear a Waltz, based on the same Arthur Lorenz play that was the basis for David Lean's film Summertime, marked the only collaboration between Stephen Sondheim and which composer? Perhaps this composer's most famous work competed for the Best Musical Tony Award against a different musical scored by his daughter, Mary. Mm-hmm. That first movie was 1965? The musical is. Musical, yeah. Yeah, you shouldn't have the text in front of you now. I mean, the first composer that springs to mind is Andrew Lloyd Webber, but I think he had a few more famous things than that. Hmm, yeah. Daughter Mary. I know he had a, he had a brother, Julian, but I can't remember what he did. See. Don't think there's a Mary Miranda. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Miranda's much younger. Yeah. Uh, let's see. That's too early for him. Don't know anything. Richard Rogers. No. I think that would be way too early. Hmm. But maybe Tim Rice was an interesting thought. Is he active in 1965? I guess not. No. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. It's gonna be kind yeah, of. I guess. Oh, Sound of Music was 65. That was Rodgers and Hammerstein, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Oscar, Hammerstein, uh, Aaron Copeland. else? Another musical. There was Oliver. Right. I don't know who wrote that. The director was Carol Reed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a toss-up. <laughs> yeah. I, I know of composers from then, but... Uh, yeah. I don't know. Kind of in the same boat there. Yeah. Rogers, Hammerstein, Copeland. Jerome Kern. Mm, I don't oh, think. That, yeah, that would have been. I think that would have been too early. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Did, did, um, the, did the question have the name Lorenz in it? Arthur, Arthur Lorenz, yeah. Because there's Lorenz Hart. 1965 musical Do but, I Hear a Waltz based on the same Arthur Lorenz play that was the basis yeah, for some Yeah, of that. that's probably a spurious connection. I. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so, let's toss one out there. Sure. Um, okay. okay. Rogers. All right. So your guess is Rogers. You're locking in. Yeah. Sure. Right. Is that correct, Greg? No, with ninety percent certainty. No, but not because I know something. Honestly, change that ninety to about a forty. 
So Sondheim and Hammerstein of, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein. Sondheim grew up friends with Hammerstein's son. And when Sondheim's parents got divorced, Hammerstein became like a pseudo father figure for him, but also mentor. So he would have known Rogers and the time is actually fine for that. So I, I was going through and the, the bit that I really focused on here is that this composer needs to have a most famous work. And I'm nervous about the idea of like Rogers and Hammerstein having like a most famous musical like Oklahoma, South Pacific, like where are we going? So somebody who would have been active in the 50s and 60s that does have a single show that he's comfortably best known for would be the guy that did Guys and Dolls, Frank Lesser. So at a certain point, Mary Rogers and Mary Lesser, neither of those is really ringing a bell for me. But I, I guess simply because this question isn't still live, if it's <laughs> Rogers, and I do think that's the best answer other than Lesser, I'm, I'm going to say Frank Lesser and lock that in. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, part of why it was still live is that you know you didn't really give a give me a pause anywhere in there. But um, so I mean, when Trevor said 1965 for Sound of Music, right? That's the date of the film adaptation. Yeah. You know, which was the most probably the most successful film adaptation of a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. The actual musical debuted on Broadway in '59, and it actually tied for the best musical Tony with Fiorello. I think the only time that award has been tied. <laughs> But another nominee that year was a musical called Once Upon a Mattress, whose composer later became a children's novelist best known for Freaky Friday. Her name was Mary Rogers. And Well done. <laughs> All right. Yeah, the, the basic, I meant to do that, yeah. <laughs> the basic trend here has been overthinking, I think. This is like the third. We're only on question five, and there have already been like three or four where you said the fir first thing you said was in during deliberation was the correct answer, but you moved away from it after that. <laughs> Recreational overthinking. <laughs> Right. Remember, this is the not all that hard round. This is if there's going to be any round where the first thing that pops into your head is correct, it's going to be this one. But yes, uh, Greg was of course right that Sondheim was mentored by Oscar Hammerstein II, and by you know '65 was during that brief period when Rogers was still active, but Hammerstein had passed away, so he was looking for other lyricists to collaborate with. All right. Next question is Greg and Trevor to steal from Joe. California State Route 82, connecting San Jose and San Francisco, follows the path of what historic road that once connected the 21 Spanish missions in Alta, California? Please give your answer in Spanish. Oh, boy. Yo no sé. Um, uh, so, what's the Spanish like, for, like, like... Well, there's, like, most famous Spanish name for a road I know is El Camino Real. Ooh, that's a like, thing. Camino is definitely... Isn't El Camino Real in California, or am I completely losing it? I, I was thinking it was maybe in Mexico, but it's highly possible. Could it perhaps be in Mexico extending northward, you know, for some missions? Could be. <laughs> I guess, I mean, I guess uh, they didn't really... Uh... Uh, my thought here is that if we say anything other than El Camino Real at this point, we're yeah, going to, like, go jump off our roofs. Egg on our face, yeah. So we're just going to go ahead and say El Camino Real, uh, Real and lock that in. 
Right. Yeah. El Camino Real translating as the Royal Road. And yeah, if you again, if you've lived in the Bay Area for any extended period of time, you'll be familiar with any number of streets that still carry that name. And yeah, that is the correct answer. I also just realized that I I hate to go out of order like this, but there actually was a bonus for Greg on the previous one. So I will I will give it to him and then I will give Joe a bonus on this question. Okay, so your bonus, Greg. So, okay, Sondheim. When Sondheim went to Oscar Hammerstein as a young man, Hammerstein assigned him four assignments, basically challenged him to write four musicals under various conditions, one of which was a musical based on an existing work of prose fiction that had not been previously dramatized. So Sondheim chose to adapt which novel, later to be associated with a completely different song score by the Sherman Brothers? It's uh, Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins is correct. And now, Joe, your bonus. So speaking of El Camino Real, which interstate highway follows the path of El Camino Real from the Mexican border north to what is now Anaheim, California? Mm, The Mexican border to Anaheim, because I know what follows it from Southern California to Northern California. I'll just say it's the same. Taking your advice not to overthink. Uh, 101? So, yeah, 101, I think, is that a state or a U.S. route, not an interstate highway? But yeah, the interstate highway that goes up the West Coast and actually passes about half a mile from where I currently am in Vancouver, it's I-5. Okay, five. All right. Okay, so two points for Trevor and Greg on that question. And now we'll move to Greg and Joe to steal from Trevor. In an April 11th, 1989 playoff game against the Washington Capitals, Philadelphia Flyers goalie Ron Hextall became the, to date, the only NHL player to accomplish what feat for the second time? Be specific. So do you remember, Joe, what I I was telling Trevor about football questions? Consider me to be telling you that about hockey questions as well. That's a darn East Coast bias. Saw it. (laughs) Uh, Second time. Washington Capitals goalie. Do we know uh, what? He's a goalie? He's a goalie. How often are um, goalies getting in fights with goalies? Not that much. They keep to themselves. Um, Well, like every once in a while, they beat at center ice, you know? I'm wondering, could this guy have done it twice? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Some of the only hockey highlights I watch. Goalies versus Uh, goalies. Okay. Uh, um, But goalies scoring wouldn't be... It wouldn't be like a trivia question that only one has ever done it twice, right? Yeah. Oh, not to mention be specific. Yeah, be specific. Okay. Sure, it involves some sort of hat trick. <laughs> Playoff games. So if it's something like a goal or a um, like conceding a goal, it could be like a game winning. Oh. Hmm. Or series winning. Yeah. Maybe it's. Maybe it's like missing all the penalty shots <laughs> or well, missing having all the penalty shots go through. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I've got no oomph on this at all, yeah. but I'd be fine with that. Okay. How and many I'm are like, there? Three? It's five. That five. was five. Okay. Nice odd number. So missing all. So in order, in order for it to happen for the second time, you'd have to absolutely embarrass yourself. But yeah, be good enough in general that you don't like your career doesn't end you know it happens yeah like uh what's his name scott norwood sure he had a career after that yeah i mean i would guess let all five penalty shots through because that would indicate that 
for that to happen, he'd have, if you let all five through, then the other team would only be have been able to have gotten, you know, maybe the last one or the yeah. last two, depending on what order things are. So, yeah, I'm gonna guess. I would I would think maybe that. So let's all play. Um, just quick double check: is there something obvious that we've sure. mentioned in our passing over? Okay. Uh, are we so doing that thing trick. for ourselves? You were saying, yeah, goalie fight, goalie versus goalie. Hat trick won't be a maybe goalie. A, well, it could be. I mean, well, except it's specific. Uh, the people have had, like, multiple hat tricks. Yeah. I'm fine going with yours. Okay. I Yeah. <laughs> so we're saying um, let essentially all, going over five on a penalty shot. On catching, on, yeah, letting all five penalty shots from the other team through. And um, that blocked it. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Okay. I, I, I under, yeah, I, I won't try and paraphrase. I understand what you mean, though. Uh, okay. Trevor? All right. First of all, I shudder at the idea of there being a shootout in the playoffs. <laughs> that that Did would they just play that OT just after be, OT. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. Last playoffs, <laughs> I think Tampa and Columbus went four OTs. <laughs> um, yeah, Ron Hextall in particular is known for having scored multiple goals. I believe Martin Brodeur has scored three, one of which was in the playoffs. So that makes me think that this is Ron Hextall scored two goals in the playoffs specifically. I guess it could be subdivided in terms of goals they actually scored or goals where they were the last player on their team to touch the puck and then the other team put it in their own net. But I don't think that's what Yogesh is going for. So I would say playoff goals by a goaltender. Mm. So, okay. So first of all, regarding what Greg said, which was, you know, is it going to be one of the things that I said that we didn't end up locking in on? Yes, Greg, it is. It is one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, because you you were the one who mentioned scoring as a goalie, which is very rare in in the NHL. But uh, yeah, as as Trevor said, there are a couple different ways in which it can happen. So in terms of who is the goalie credited with the most goals, it is in fact Martin Brodeur. But only one of his goals was scored through a shot on goal. Whereas two of yeah, us. Gotcha. Yeah. So again, you know, both of you, you know, Greg, Greg got the right area and Trevor got, you know, mentioned actually the exact thing I was going for, but neither of you yeah. quite locked in on it. I'm oh. not sure. Yeah. So it goes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how to score that, but I guess since I did say be specific, I guess I won't give credit to anyone. I might revisit that if the, the results turn out to be really close at the end. But I, I'd certainly be fine with you crediting him as right there. Yeah. Joe, what do you think? Sure. It's your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, this is Recreational Thinking with Yogesh Rout. <laughs> yes. Uh, thank you for the, the Yeah, I, sh- I should probably like pay you to record, to record that. So, your so. imaging. Yeah, I'll do that. Sure. <laughs> All right. OK. Yeah, I'll give uh, I'll give Trevor credit for that. Thank you kindly. Probably don't deserve it, but you're right. about deserving. <laughs> yeah, I guess this is uh, whose line is it anyway rules. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. It's more like Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven. Deserves got nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Trevor and Joe now to steal from Greg. The 1997 action thriller Dangerous Ground starring Ice Cube as an American immigrant who returns to his uh, native South Africa, they want us to believe, and avenges his brother's death by taking down a Johannesburg drug lord, played by Ving Rhames, with the help of a stripper, played by Elizabeth Hurley. 
disappointed many critics, including Leonard Maltin, who wrote, Despite broad plot parallels, don't look for the solemn tone director Daryl Root brought to his remake of X. What 1951 British film featuring an early performance by Sidney Poitier and remade under Root's direction in 1995 have I replaced with X? Mm -hmm. 1951, 1995 remake, uh, solemn tone. Fortunately, I haven't seen Dangerous Grounds. I'm not too familiar with 1950s British movies. Remade in 1995. Hmm. Let's see. There's, seems like there's, well, there is a racial element with Sidney Poitier and mm-hmm. Ice Cube. Let's see. 1951. Um, Brother's yeah. Death. Yeah, there was, I think All About Eve was 51, I think, but that doesn't really help us. Yeah. Let's see. Had a stripper with a heart of gold. Mm-hmm. As strippers tend to possess. So someone's returning. So. South Africa. Yeah. We think the original movie was South Africa as well? or Maybe, but I can't think of one that was there. This direction. No, that was a different one. Yeah. Get Cardell's tips. Mmm. Yeah, I've, I've got nothing coming to me. Oh, hold on. Oh. No, that wasn't it. No, never mind. I'm trying to think of revenge-type films like that. Uh, wouldn't be Bad Day at Black Rock. It's, yeah. That was Australian, wasn't it? No, that was uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Ah, yeah. Bad Day at Black Rock was, uh, what's his name, Spencer Tracy. That yeah. was, yeah. Yeah. That was in the U.S. anyway. Um... What's the plot of How Green Was My Valley? Do you know that? Uh, I think that's set in Wales, uh-huh. like coal mining country there. Right. I want to say during World War One, but I haven't actually seen it to know. Uh-huh. Not the naked... Hmm. And also it was like the 40s because it won Best Picture over Citizen Kane. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, hmm. There's one called... the. I'm thinking some kind of... It'd be in the 50s, it'd be some kind of noir film. I don't know if they made a remake of it or if there was actually a film that it might be The Naked City. That was one. I'm not familiar with it. Okay. That was a noir novel. I think it was made into a movie. Yeah. I don't know if they remade it in 95. Uh, I mean, I don't feel like I'm going to come up with a good guess for this one. So. Yeah. Just go with The Naked City. Sure. Okay. All right. Locked in yeah, The Naked City. Lock, lock in on The Naked City. All right, Greg. Are we allowed to reveal what our specialist categories are? Sure. I mean, you you can. It it may give an advantage to your to the other contestants, but you're certainly free to do so. I I think it's it's worth it for podcast reasons because if I get this right, it's the only reason why. What I gave as a specialist category was South African literature. This question doesn't mention anything about being adapted from a book, but if it is, then we've got returning to Johannesburg after your brother dies with the help of some sort of sex worker. I think she's a prostitute in the book. I have no idea that Sidney Poitier was in it, but the idea of remaking this right after Apartheid falls makes perfect sense. I'm going to lock in Cry the Beloved Country. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, your logic is directly right on, and that is the correct answer. And now to finish out this round, Greg and Trevor to steal from Joe. The Winter Triangle is an asterism featuring the three brightest stars in the Northern Hemisphere's winter sky, forming an approximately equilateral triangle. 
two vertices of that triangle are also part of the so-called winter hexagon or winter oval, be a good boy and name both of those stars. Be a good boy, eh? <laughs> so that might be a reference to that one mnemonic for classes of stars. Ooh. Or yeah. it could be a dog joke. Yeah. Like, in which case, serious. That is um, the brightest, well, second brightest star in the sky. Is it the brightest uh, or the second brightest in the winter sky? Um, like... Sirius is associated with Orion. I have been seeing Orion recently. Okay. I think I think it's more of a summer to fall. Yeah. Oh, isn't that what Dog Days of Summer is? Yeah. That's Something to do point. with that staying out? Yeah. Or is it that staying out or that showing up early? Because that I maybe, think... that's what the Dog Days are, is that yeah. Sirius shows up and it's still hot. Yeah. And, yeah. See, the classification, I think, goes O-B-A-F-G-K-M. Okay. So I don't think the good boy has to do with that. Okay. okay. I, I know there's a mnemonic, and I don't yeah. know what the mnemonic is. So I have a mnemonic, but I don't think I should say. <laughs> um, so if uh, one of the answers is serious... Has he given us any other routes in on the other answer? Well, I'm almost thinking Sirius might be a binary star, but that wouldn't really make sense for a triangle. Yeah, pretty shitty triangle if two of the points yeah. are in the same spot. Um, uh, what else? Like two. What else is stars, just really like, bright? Like Castor and Pollux, Wind Boys. Yeah. Are there other dogs? Like Orion has one, right? Like he's got like a, a hunter. Yeah, that, that, like is that is serious. Oh, that is okay. Yeah. That is Canis Major. Yeah. Um, do we know any stars in Canis Minor? Can't say that I do. Siri. Cool. Siriella. <laughs> Sirietta. Uh, Pluto. The answer is Pluto. Like, it's a star now. <laughs> <sighs> what else is just really There's, bright? Well, Rigel is really bright. Yeah, Rigel. Uh, Bellatrix is in is in mm-hmm. Orion. Yeah, Betelgeuse is in Orion, but it's not... But hmm, if Canis Major and Orion are close, you're saying, then maybe it is Sirius and two from Orion. Could be. Did did he say what the third star was? Nope, it's just that there is a two overlap between a three and a six. And then Orion's belt could be the extra three, maybe. Although, might be a misshapen hexagon. Yeah. What do we have other than Rigel and Sirius that we like? Bellatrix, you said? Uh, yeah, if if two stars are in Orion, it could be Bellatrix and Beetlejuice. Okay. Are we talking ourselves out of Sirius at this point? At the risk of feeling very embarrassed, I think we are. Okay. <laughs> but it's happening again. Be a good boy. Yeah, what is be a good boy there for if it's not <laughs> the dog thing? Yeah. I think with that there, yeah. I, I yeah. do want us to say Sirius. Yeah, I'm fine with that other dogs and you're telling me it's close to orion so rigel bellatrix betelgeuse one of the belt it's not going to be one of the belt rigel bellatrix or betelgeuse what do we like for our second i'm trying to remember which is the alpha star right i'm pretty sure rigel is alpha and betelgeuse is beta okay and betelgeuse might be like bigger but it's yeah less right yeah i would be fine with rigel then i'm serious let's do it 
Sure. We're locking in Rigel and Sirius. You're Sean Mew. Turn the mic on. Yeah, there we go. Three brightest stars forming in the little triangle. Well, Sirius is the brightest star, and it is in the northern hemisphere's winter sky. I don't think it's part of the winter hexagon, though. I think those, I, I'm thinking that would be Rigel and Procyon, which is in Canis Minor. I, I don't remember if that had come up. I think Sirius is a little low sticking out there. So I'm thinking Rigel and Procyon. Is that what you're locking in? Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me just fact check. I did, I did fact check this, but I just want to make doubly sure that I fact checked it correctly. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, you know, you all picked up on the good boy thing being about dogs, and Greg did point out there's a Canis Major and a Canis Minor, and, you know, the main stars in those, as Joe pointed out, are Sirius and Procyon, and I just double-checked, and, yeah, according to my source, those are both part of the Winter Hexagon. So, yeah, Sirius and Procyon were the two. Yeah, we're at the end of it right now. Joe wants to take a quick break. So it was two dogs after all. Yeah. Yeah. That is not a star I am aware of. <laughs> yeah, when it came down to it, we just couldn't, we couldn't name anything that's in Canis Minor. Yeah. <laughs> I think Canis Minor is really just two stars, so, and Procyon is the only one I even care about. That was what always jumped out at me. It's called Canis Minor. You could just call it exclamation point, or anything else that's just one bright <laughs> thing and one, yeah. <laughs> one less bright thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel bad, because you were also close on that one, and just oh. kind of... Well, yeah. <laughs> We were 50% of the way there. Well, the thing where I keep saying answers like that is is part of why that Northwestern team with like Adam Silverman and Dylan and I was so good is because I could just spit out stuff and they could pick or vice versa. Okay. Okay. So at the end of this round, scores are Trevor 7.1, Greg 7.2, Joe 2.0. But that doesn't mean all that much because the point values will now go up into the only somewhat hard round, four points for the steal, three points for a specialist question, two points for a bonus. And we'll start with Greg and Joe trying to steal from Trevor. Unfortunately, another U.S.-centric question. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm used to it in the <laughs> quizzing world. All right. Unveiled by Michelle Obama in 2011 and ending the 19-year reign of pyramids, what circular diagram serves as the current USDA-approved nutrition guide? I have Probably no have a cigarette. <laughs> Um, well, those wouldn't be circular. Yeah. So a ring, an orb, a cycle, a uh, uh, food loop. Oblong. Uh, circular diagram. We're not making much noise right now, uh, but <laughs> yeah, I think but... that might be indicative that we don't have any thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Dog was, but I think that's just because somebody's daring to cross the other side of the street. So amazing. Um, yeah, let's kilo. Hmm. I want to say food web, but that's that's something totally different. That's like biology or ecology. Um, daily allowance of wolf. <laughs> um, All right. Uh, cycle feels similarly like wrong. You wouldn't. Yeah. That that so loop oval. You wouldn't call it an ellipse. That's not as marketable. You know. Hmm. I obviously can't picture this in my head at all. Yeah. You want to go with oval? Sure. We are locking in with Oval. All right. I'll just pass this to Trevor. Uh, yeah, so so it's definitely a circle, for starters. I believe it's split into half the circle is fruits and vegetables, a quarter is meat, a quarter is grains, or something like that. 
and then there's an extra small circle for water <laughs> that represents a glass and all of those represent how much how much of each sort of food your plate should be allotted to it's the food plate i'm pretty sure lock that in all right yeah so you can see it at uh, choosemyplate.gov I'm a bit surprised. I'm thinking of circular things having to do with food. Your minds didn't go to plates. But... <laughs> I came very close to saying food egg. <laughs> I went to tortas. <laughs> yeah, the the official name is my plate, but I think I think plate is close enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Trevor and Joe now to steal from Greg. The classic play Blood Knot, about two South African brothers, one of whom can pass as white, starred the great J.D. Cannon and James Earl Jones in its 1964 off-Broadway American premiere. But in its original 1961 Johannesburg production, Zakes Mokai played the dark-skinned brother Zachariah, opposite whom as the light-skinned brother Morris. Sorry, what were the names in the 1961 play or movie in Johannesburg? Can you see the chat? Because it should be in front of you. Uh, oh. Actually, I'm because I did try and contact you by chat beforehand. Yeah, and you didn't see those I'm, either. Not, I'm not seeing. Have you not been seeing any of the texts in the chat window? Uh, nope. Oh, oh. Well, that does put you at a slight disadvantage, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well. So lighter skinned brother Maurice. I mean, some people call Steve Miller Maurice, but... <laughs> Blood mm. Knot with James Earl Jones. I think it might be. I was in Johannesburg. He's, he's a, use the phrase, lighter-skinned brother. Mm. So doesn't necessarily mean white. Mm. Uh, Maurice. Or Morris, yeah. Well, it's just for Trevor's benefit. The classic play Blood Knot about two South African brothers, one of whom can pass as white, starred the great J.D. Cannon and James Earl Jones in its 1964 off-Broadway American premiere. But in its original 1961 Johannesburg production, Zakes Mokai played the dark-skinned brother Zachariah, opposite whom as the light-skinned brother Morris. Uh, well, I'm, I don't know. I'm thinking... Do, sorry, go ahead. Well, are we feeling that this is... More related to South African literature, specialist category. Probably like could, could be like a playwright or something. That yeah, like that's what I'm thinking because I don't think any any um, black actors would want to go to South Africa <laughs> during this period. Yeah. And I'm I'm guessing maybe it was because apartheid really apartheid really had its hooks in then it might have been like an underground play there or something like that maybe it was the playwright who was acting yeah. in it maybe like, and the only only playwright i can think it would be Athel fugard yeah that's what i was thinking too okay master harold and children yeah and the boys yeah yeah and the boys yeah okay so yeah, go, I, yeah let's go with that yeah lock that in Athel fugard all right yeah, after after a very long time of, you know, not or, or, you know, mentioning the right path and then not going down it, you guys mentioned the right path and then did go down it. It is. Yay. Yay. <laughs> All right. Cross a quick bonus to Greg. What white South African author's 1973 novel, Kenneth Van de or Looking on Darkness, was the first book in Afrikaans to be banned by the South African government? Marlon Brando's final Academy Award nomination came for a brief cameo as a lawyer in a 1989 film adapted from this man's most famous work. So a white Afrikaner writing, Andre Brink comes to mind, and you haven't said A Dry White Season, which is his most famous, so I'm going to assume that that's secretly Brando. I'm going to say Brink. Yes, Andre Brink is the correct answer, and yeah, A Dry White Season is the film and novel I was alluding to. So points for everyone on that. 
And now Greg and Trevor to steal from Joe. The city of Benghazi, Libya, was formerly named for what queen of Saranaika, who married into the Ptolemaic dynasty? Her alleged sacrifice of her lovely locks of hair in order to guarantee her husband's safe return and victory in battle led to one of the 88 modern constellations being named for her. Hmm. This is Trevor and I, right? Yeah. Yes. So all of the Ptolemaic queens were named Arsinoe, Baroness, or Cleopatra. But if she married into the Ptolemies, yeah. that might not apply. And uh, I don't think that's the name of any of the constellations. Isn't, like, uh, Cassiopeia or Andromeda, Andromeda, aren't one of them from Ethiopia? Yeah, yeah. Okay. They're both Ethiopia. Well, I don't know if there was a defined Ethiopia this? then, but... Well, valid. Huh. What other... I mean, this is where we put out a plug for the scholarship of Chancellor Williams, if you're interested about whether Ethiopia was real there. Um, hmm. so Benghazi is right where the, we're going along level and then suddenly the coast dips and the, the Mediterranean coastline is, is north south very briefly. And then it levels okay. out. Benghazi's right at that turn. Okay. But I don't think that helps at all. I think it's just Benghazi used to be known as somebody or other polis, you know? Yeah. So we want to do it off, off the constellation. What, what were the names that you said that weren't Cleopatra? Baroness and Arsinoe. Spelled like uh, like Berenice uh, kind of thing? Yeah. B-E-R-E-N-I-C-E. -E -E. And then Arsinoe and, with the, the um, A-R-S-I-N-O-E. Uh, I don't think so. A-R-S-I-N-O-E. Okay. -E. okay. Constellations. Constellations for women, there's Leda. Or no, that's Cygnus. Leda. Yeah, actually, I suppose it's just the swan. It's like Virgo, but that's not really a name. <laughs> Plus, she's sacrificed. She's, according to the question, married. So that probably yeah. killed out Virgo. Well, or a, a very unfulfilling <laughs> well, maybe marriage. maybe he was busy fighting. Actually, for the record, uh, Andromeda or Cassiopeia, whichever one is, like, on a rock being saved by a dude on a Pegasus. Oh, actually, no, she's being saved by yeah. a dude who later tries to marry her, that's not yeah, somebody's yeah. wife already. Yeah, I think yeah. it was Perseus. I think so, but... Maybe maybe Bellerophon. Um, yeah. Like, Cassiopeia was the one who was... I think she was chained to the rock. Okay. But that Andromeda is her mother, and it might also have been Andromeda. Okay. Yeah, we're dancing around the same legend here, and neither of us yeah. knows it very clearly. Andromedopolis and Cassiopeiopolis are both ridiculous sounding former name of Benghazi Libya I'm trying to think like Carthaginian cities you know there's like Hippo Regius was in there yeah. somewhere or Carthage duh yeah. or Phoenician cities even though I yeah that's not completely ridiculous no I think the Phoenicians would predate yeah. this for yeah a good chunk mm. famous hair and like uh, Hepshetsut, uh, Nefertiti, all those, those are several dynasties before, right? I can't recall like if the we're year talking off Ramses, hand, Yeah. I think, I think we're like, like a thousand years off from the Ptolemies. I think. Do we have anything? Or, I don't think we got anything solid, no. Do we, do we pick one of Andromeda or Cassiopeia just so we're uh, saying? Uh, so which one do you think the mom is? I think Andromeda is the mother. So if we say Andromeda, 
then that doesn't rule out the possibility of some dude on a horse trying to save the daughter later. I don't think that ever does rule that out. Um, so I'm fine locking in Andromeda yeah. if you are. Sure thing. Andromeda is our answer. Andromeda. Okay, yeah. So so just just for the record, Bellerophon was the one who rode Pegasus. I think his story is just kind of a remake of the one of Perseus, though, because Perseus was the one who saved the maiden chain from the monster, but the maiden was Andromeda. Her mother was Cassiopeia. Oh. And they are all in the sky as constellations, I think. But none of them are the correct answer to this question. Yep. Okay. That's it. <clears throat> Yeah, I, I remember the legend about this one. She supposedly sacri- she put her locks into the temple, and then they, they disappeared. And she found out about it and was went up to the high priest, ready to like have his head chopped off. And he said, oh, oh, look up there. The gods took them away. And what he pointed to was kind of a fudgy, fuzzy patch of sky. This is one of the dimmest constellations because you're actually looking up out of the galaxy. You know, the galaxy is a spiral. If you look, you look straight the core is in Sagittarius, so there's lots of stars there, but you're looking like straight up. So the brightest star there is like a fifth magnitude one. It's it's similar to the sun, but it's 30 light years away. And then there's basically little, if anything else, there. But yeah, it was another missed the bite, missed the off, missed the turn out there. The constellation is Coma Berenices, and that's going to be uh, Queen Berenice. <laughs> yeah. So what, what do you think? <laughs> okay. But you didn't realize this was actually a stealth 20th century American literature question. Which uh, famous American short story is about a girl who loses her hair and has a name that sounds a lot like something Trevor said as a Ptolemaic queen? Bernice bobs her hair by Fef Scott Fitzgerald. It's a- oh, yeah. <laughs> this is definitely Bernice. All right. Okay. Now-, <laughs> now I know that's a constellation. All right. Greg and Joe to steal from Trevor now. No, Al Gore wasn't the first Nobel laureate to talk about anthropogenic climate change. Which first Swedish scientist to win a Nobel Prize published the 1896 paper on the influence of carbonic acid in the air upon the temperature of the ground, containing the first known observation and explanation of what is now called the greenhouse effect? In spite of this, his name is probably more familiar from your chemistry classes. I've got a thought. What is I it? Don't know. Svante Arrhenius. That is my thought, too. He's Swedish. Mm -hmm. He has an equation that would be more familiar than this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it it kind of popped in my head. Yeah, I think I I remember hearing about it. He, like, thought about it back or wrote something about it back in the the 1896. There we go. Carbonic air, temperature of the ground. Did he win the Nobel? Yes, I don't remember for what, but... uh, Presumably chem. Yeah. (laughs) I I think we're just spinning our wheels if we say anyone else. Yeah, yeah. I've learned to trust. If it pops into my head, that's probably it. Plus, it looks like we can name one Swedish chemist total between the two of us. Well, it was Roselius, but yeah. Oh, is he right? I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, think, <laughs> I, yeah I think it's Arrhenius, but yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, we're like going to say Arrhenius, and that's our answer. Hopefully we're not Arrhenius. <laughs> that would be fun if it were erroneous. But yeah, he was a physicist by training, but his Nobel was in chemistry. And he was a member of the committee that gave out the Nobel Prizes, actually. So it was pretty easy for him to get one. <laughs> <laughs> it was Svante Arrhenius, that is correct. And we'll now go to Trevor and Joe to steal from Greg. So no fewer than three 2019 films nominated for the Oscar for either Best Original Screenplay or Best Adapted Screenplay incorporated lyrics and or music from Stephen Sondheim's show tunes. So name any two of those three films which paid homage to respectively Follies, Company, and A Little Night Music. 
Hint, for one of them, it might help to know the subject matter of Sondheim's sole straight play, or non-musical play, which he penned with frequent collaborator George Firth. Okay, so I know for a fact that Marriage Story had Adam Driver singing, I think it's called Feeling Alive from Follies, or from Company. Okay. And then I think Scarlett Johansson also sings from it, too. Mm. That's one. Uh, what mm. other? I don't know. I'm not going to be much help on this. I'm trying to think. <laughs> Uh, what other movies were there? Don't think it's Parasite. Mm. Ford v. Ferrari. I don't think it was that. Uh, I know it's a movie I've seen, so that helps. Mm. Hmm. Well, what is there? What movies were there? Let's see, Marriage Story. Um, um, 1917. Not that. Was Roma the year before? Uh, yeah, it was. Okay. It was 2018. Dunkirk? Uh, Dunkirk was, no, was Dunkirk the year before? That was, that was a few years ago. Yeah, right. now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think Little Women was set a bit before uh, Sondheim was around. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, nothing else is really coming to me offhand. Mm. Was Ford versus Ferrari? Was that one of them? Uh, yeah, I think that was set before Sondheim as well. I think it may have been around then. It was, what, the 60s? Well, I was thinking it was the 54 Le Mans, uh, but I could be wrong. Okay. I could be wrong, too. <laughs> I'm just thinking at this point, it may be Marriage Story plus a film. Yeah. Oh. And Little Women, I'm assuming, wasn't some, um, uh, you know, didn't have, like, uh, what it was it? no anachronistic. It was no, it was no A Knight's Tale. A Knight's Tale or uh, what's Moulin Rouge, no anachronistic yeah. Uh, yeah. singing or Bioshock Infinite. No. Hmm. I, yeah, I can't I can't think of one Pair. other than. Yeah. I have no idea if this is going to be relevant, but, you know, the longer you go, the more time you give Greg to think as well. It's actually Just... really helping, so please keep going. <laughs> well, then stop listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you rotate also. <laughs> it's good enough for you, Gesh. It's good enough for you. Uh, let's see. Yeah I, yeah, I can't think of anything other than anything. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Um, oh, Parasite has that one scene where the girls, like, dance, like, singing and dancing with her fingers but I assume that's completely unrelated to Sondheim. Huh. Light music. I don't know. I guess the marriage story and Ford versus Ferrari? Uh, or Parasite? I think I'd, I would actually go Parasite before Ford versus Ferrari, but... Okay, sure. Why not? Yeah, at least another marriage, singing there. Marriage story and Parasite. All right, yeah, and... Okay, yeah, again, just to just to clarify, uh, Ford versus Ferrari is set around the 1966 Le Mans. Okay. 24, 24 hour of Le Mans, yeah, that's not really relevant, but I just wanted to, it for the record. And yeah, okay, so, yeah, Greg, you've been given a lot of time to think, so, you know, <laughs> what do you have? Well, they, they definitely got Marriage Story. I mean, Adam Driver singing Being Alive from Company, that's absolutely in there. So I was kind of going through... I mean, the, the Little Night music has to be Send in the Clowns. Nothing else from that show really um, works as a standalone number. Follies could be Broadway Baby, I think is from that. Follies is, is a lot. It's kind of set up as a, as a review, so almost all of the songs would work alone. But ju- just because I feel like there's probably like a profound theater kid energy involved, I thought about maybe... Whatever the Renee Zellweger, Judy Garland movie was, which I think is just called Judy. But with like high school overachiever 
dorks. I, I feel I, I have no I haven't seen it. I have no memory of it. But I I'm guessing Marriage Story and Booksmart. Hmm. That's a good good guess. Definitely there was a 2019 production with overachieving high school kids performing Sondheim. It was Ryan Murphy's TV series, The Politician. <laughs> Yeah, so a couple ways in here. One is to know what is what was Sondheim's sole straight play, which I guess none of you know, no. or, or even just what genre he's known to be a big fan of. His play was called Getting Away with Murder. So, yeah, he really likes old crime yeah. TV shows. Yeah, so that's one thing that could have led you to uh, what was it? 2019's big uh, murder mystery whodunit Knives was out. Knives Out, which mm-hmm. Daniel Craig at one yeah. point losing my mind from Follies. Um, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, there are there are two songs from Company in Marriage Story, one sung by Adam Driver and one earlier in the film by Scarlett Johansson and a couple other cast members. And of course, A Little Night Music, the most famous song from it, Send in the Clowns, the 2019 film whose main character was a clown, is of course It oh, Chapter Joker. 2. Joker. <laughs> oh yeah, there's another one, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Future Yogesh with a clarification. It Chapter 2 was a joke on my part. The actual correct answers are Marriage Story, Knives Out, and Joker. All right, so I believe, none, yeah, none of you got any points on that. All right, and just go to the next one. For Greg and Trevor to steal from Joe. Although his father left marks both on the screen in the exploitation film Mandingo and in The Ring, once breaking Muhammad Ali's jaw, whose primary achievement in his own right is being the only NFL player to be on the winning side of three consecutive Super Bowls. Okay, so well, Mandingo, that's like 70s? I think it's a bit earlier. Okay. Um, pretty sure it's referenced in Jackie Brown at some point. Okay. So but that doesn't really But help. But, like, you know, in fighting against Muhammad Ali, like, yeah. this player could very well still be active for his dad yeah. to be that age. Yeah, maybe. Maybe recently retired. Yeah. I mean, I know it's not the quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, whoever that was. <laughs> did um did anyone win two in a row two in a I row mean, recently? Patriots? I, I feel like Brady had to have at some point. I'm wondering if uh, maybe one of his players then got traded. Yeah. yeah. I mean that that would be sir. that would be the Patriots being in three, which I'm not sure about. But also, like I said, this is not something I'm good at. Yeah. What other dynasties were there? Like the Steelers had a good run in the 70s. Yeah. But the way the question was worded made, yeah. makes me think that a player changed teams at some point. Cause... What about um uh, Richard Sherman? Has he won yes. with the uh, 49ers? I don't think the 49ers have won this decade. Yeah, okay, true. Because the Seahawks won and then they lost the next year. Oh, that's what I was thinking about, you know? Is there anyone on that team? Actually, what was our other... Do we know for sure that these are football questions and not, like, San Francisco football questions? I don't think we do. But the other questions were related to San Francisco. Uh, I'm scrolling up in the chat that you can't see. I mean, the 49ers were... The Santa Clara like, one. Was that the only other football one we've had? I think so. Okay. Because the other one was the El Camino Real. Yeah, okay. So this like, this could be like somebody from the yeah. Young and Montana 49ers. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking Steve Young maybe, but uh, I mean, I mean Jerry are Rice, that it's someone I've never heard of. So. Jerry Rice never got traded, right? I do not know. 
if I'm right and he played his whole career for the 49ers, then there's essentially no way for him to be the answer here without several of his teammates yeah. also being right. Yeah. There's got to be a trade involved. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Just going way deeper into my football knowledge than I'm capable of. Yep. Do we want to guess somebody like me and Joe Green? You know, get away from California entirely and just... Uh, oh, yeah. We had the the Steelers question. Oh yeah, yeah. So this is this is an NFL category, not a 49ers category. Yeah. The Steelers question was from the three R's round. It wasn't from one of any of the oh. special. Oh well, okay. God is dead. That doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> Can we name anyone on those 49ers teams other than Young Montana and Rice? I cannot. Okay. Kaepernick was after that, so. Comfortably so, yeah. I. I don't like any of them as an answer for this. Do we have any kind of educated guess, yeah. or do we want to be pulling like a Smith or a Johnson or something out of our hat? I don't feel as though I have an educated guess for this one. So. And if he prompts us, we'll just say Steve Smith, because there's 9,000 of those anyway. Sure. Yeah, Yogesh, we're going to lock in with Smith. All right, yeah, I think under the rules, if if the answer were Smith, I would give that to you. And I've, I have given credit to similar wild guesses in previous episodes, but it's not Smith. Joe? Yeah. I, yeah, I remember those three because they were they happened in like when I was my first three years in college in LA and it's like I remember starting of the day thinking oh my gosh the Niners are gonna go to the Super Bowl and, oh they they got their they they got beaten severely but yeah that last year that was kind of their their swan song of the original dynasty and that was actually before right before they. I think they made the switch over to the um, more of the salary cap stuff. So you couldn't just kind of, you know, buy a team and put it together and run it. I was the year they added Deion Sanders, I know. But yeah, they did get that one player from the Cowboys who had won twice the year before or the two years before and won the Super Bowls. And then he was in it and his dad was a boxer. I remember he would be on local sports TV and wear this cowboy hat, which I guess was his thing. But that is going to be Ken Norton Jr., yeah, so his father, Ken Norton, starred in Mandingo and was a successful boxer who broke Muhammad Ali's jaw. And yeah, his name, Ken Norton Jr. And actually, that puts Joe into first place at the end of his cycle. So he's made up the deficit from the previous round. Nice. Wow, good job. Double wow. All right, so now Greg and Joe to steal from Trevor. Both Gordie Howe and Bobby Hull ended their NHL careers by playing for what expansion franchise during its inaugural 1979-80 season? Hometown fans of this franchise never got to see it capture the Stanley Cup, although it did win a Stanley Cup in the 21st century after relocating. Okay. I think the Colorado Avalanche were founded new rather than moved. And that, that uh, no, was that, that was, that was you know, yeah, the Avalanche used to be the Quebec Nordiques. Oh, okay. But that was, that was 90s, right? That was 90s, yeah, also. So. And just to be clear, I'm looking here for the name the franchise had when Howen Hull played for it, not its current. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. No way we can whip off, like, every team that's won in the 20th century, in the 21st. No, right? no. Admittedly, many of them are the Blackhawks, like, or the Bruins. Like, there are... Yeah. Many- Something popped in my head, though. A couple of teams. Go for it. Um, yeah, there was the, the Whalers... And the Flames. And okay. the thing is, I thought the Whalers were, well, I guess they count as expansion. But I think because there was like the World Hockey League and the World Hockey Association, like the second league, and some of their teams moved over to the NHL. 
or were absorbed. I don't know if that counts as a uh, expansion franchise. I guess it would because it's they're expanding the NHL. But so the I, the Whalers are those the Hurricanes or the Panthers? They're the Hurricanes now. Yeah, they were the New England Whalers and the Hartford Whalers. Then then they moved to Carolina and became the Hurricanes. Has Carolina so, won one? I believe so. Oh. But Whalers kind of popped into my head. I'm trying to think of what other expansion teams there were. We've got an answer that ticks all the boxes, at least. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But it, it was one of those things that popped in my head. Oh, what do you have? What was the other one that you were mentioning? Uh, Flames, yeah. They started it at Calgary. But they're still... Aren't they also really bad now? The Flames? Not really. Like, they... I, I don't think I can remember a, a Flames... They knocking the like... Sharks out of the playoffs. Oh, that's true, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they weren't terrible. And but then yeah, they're still they may have been at the same time, but Whalers kind of popped again. Did that little dance in my head? Every little bit of this question consistent with what you're telling me about the Whalers. Yeah. And you're saying the answer wouldn't be Hartford; it would be what New England. Well, they started as New England. We can just say Whalers. Well, he says he wants to name in the inaugural season. Yeah. But yeah. if we lock in Whalers and he asks us for more then we can sort that out then sounds reasonable to me yeah i'm trying to think of anybody else i don't think he other expansion team i did the golden so oh, hmm hang on <laughs> well there were the golden seals they played in the bay area in the 70s and then they i think they ended up being the north stars in minnesota uh wait. to me this question implies one relocation rather than two. Yeah. It's kind of a mess. So, so um, Hartford to Carolina works better than Bay Area to Minnesota to Dallas. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm Again, going back to that thing, I think it might be the Whalers just because of that pop-up in my head. I learned to trust through um, uh, <laughs> over the years. Usually... Thinking, why didn't you say that before? So, uh, let's do yeah, it. Yeah, let's go with Whalers. That's our answer. It in. The Whalers. In, okay, so, yeah, I think your memory was very slightly off because the New England Whalers were actually their name in the WHA, uh-huh. but the Bruins blocked their joining the NHL with that name because they uh-huh. wanted it to be the only, they didn't want it to be like the New England franchise. So they actually had to change to Hartford when they joined the NHL. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't specify. I mean, I think, I think that showed, I think you showed sufficient knowledge, basically. I would say so. Yeah. So that is correct. Gordie Howe played for the New England Whalers. And then when they re-entered the NHL, I think he was on a team with his own son and he was (laughs) over 50 years old. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll give you a quick bonus for Trevor. When the Hurricanes did win their Stanley Cup, who did they beat in the final? Edmonton Oilers. All right. Points for uh, everyone. I still laugh at them for it. <laughs> and now we go to Trevor and Joe to steal from Greg. Which 20th century artist basically wrapped up his career while still in his 30s and thenceforth devoted all of his energy to chess? In 1932, he and Vitaly Halberstadt published Opposition and Sister Squares Are Reconciled, a corresponding squares analysis that solved the endgame study known as the Lasker-Reichhelm position. So... 20th century artist who in 1932 moved to chess. Yeah. Sister square, so it might be a woman. Mm. It says his 30s, so. Oh, okay, I missed that. Yeah. Let's see. Hmm. No, I mean, 
a vague memory of, of knowing of some art of an artist who like went chess mad uh hmm. wrapped up his career oh well, probably not christo too early for him i like the fun that would be involved yeah that, that would be typical <laughs> but uh yeah uh was it dang it thinking of artists here is there any sort of hint as to where they were from like French, American, mm. well, Russian. Yeah, Russian. I mean, vitally, I think that's that's a yeah. Russian name. Uh, opposition and sister squares. Let's go to Kelly. Uh, what popped into my head was either Kandinsky or Magritte. Yeah, I I thought of Kandinsky or Chagall. And Chagall was yeah. The art of Kandinsky seems like the art of someone who would be into chess. Mm-hmm. Let's see, yeah. Thinking of that, not Magritte or Mondaine, sorry. Yeah. yeah, I'm not familiar with them. Yeah, that's uh, more modern stuff, but I think that came out later. Mm. Maybe Kandinsky. That's that's. Yeah. A, do you have anything else? I don't really have anything okay. else. No. Yeah, that's the first one that came up. So sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Lockin Kandinsky. Let's lock in Kandinsky. All right, Greg. I've got. Some thoughts. I'm I'm now worried about the possibility of Pete Mondrian just because the dude likes squares. <laughs> and like 1932, basically if 1932 said like 1945, I'd be very confident. But Marcel Duchamp was really into chess and published problems, and I'm going to feel dumb if I say anyone but him and it's him. So I'm locking in with Duchamp. All right. And yeah, your your memory plays you well. It is Marcel Duchamp. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, what I was thinking of. Yeah, as soon as he yeah. says the name. Yeah. 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 Nationalities aren't that helpful. Either, but during that period, I mean, many of the active chess masters were moving between countries quite a bit. Mm. I yeah. think, yeah. Nimzovich, when he published My System, was in somewhere in Scandinavia, right? Like Denmark or something. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And the last question of this round before we move to the super hard round a steal from Joe. <laughs> Serving as mayor of San Jose from 1971 to 1975, what former Secretary of Commerce during the Clinton administration and Secretary of Transportation during the Bush 43 administration, the only Democrat in George W. Bush's cabinet, was interned in the Heart Mountain War Relocation Center near Cody, Wyoming, as a boy? Oh. So, interned in a relocation center in Wyoming. This guy's, or do we have a pronoun? This man or woman could yeah. very well be native. Um, it's well said as a, as a boy, so that should Oh, be as a boy. There it is. Okay. So he I, could be Native American. Have there been many Native American... I don't know. Department secretaries? I mean, with, with all the talk of Biden potentially naming Republicans to his cabinet, the, the idea yeah. of cross-party, you know, often that's defense secretaries. That yeah, he's... trying to think of Clinton's... Uh, secretaries well as a boy could this guy be japanese did we do japanese internment outside of california well i mean canada did but <laughs> okay did you guys do it outside of like british columbia i don't think that, not that i'm aware of because if you're eight or nine in let's say 44 then when you're mayor of san jose you're 35 yeah, you're like 35, 36. And then in W's administration, 
you'd be very old. Actually, no, you wouldn't. If you're born in 36, for instance, then you could be like Clinton to Bush and you're like in your 70s. Yeah. Can we name a Japanese cabinet secretary? Um, yeah. It's like there's Eleanor Chu, but that's A, a uh, woman, and B, I think yeah, that's I think. Elaine Chow. Oh, Elaine Chow, yeah. And, yeah. It sounds like I Eleanor Chu with a Canadian yeah. accent. <laughs> there we go. Um, married to Mitch McConnell and I'm, Duff. Christian Nielsen was Secretary of Transportation. I think that was more uh, under Trump. Homeland Security. Uh, okay, thanks for catching me. Uh, but, yeah, war Relocation Center. I don't think that's a phrasing you're using for prisoners or yeah. for more of us being horrible to Native Americans. Like, I, I think this is Japanese internment. Yeah, it does make sense to me. I want to go with, like, Ken something, but I think I'm going to Ken Salazar, who is very much a yeah. different thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, because also one of the quirks with Elaine Chow is that even though she's a cabinet secretary, she's not in the line of succession because she wasn't born in the U.S. Okay. Takahashi, like, sue me, but I, I don't like the idea of just, like, randomly listing off Japanese names yeah. on a podcast. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> not uh, the greatest optics, eh? Yeah, I wish I could uh, remember what the like equivalent of Park or Lee is. Like what what the oh, it's not Toyota. It's something like that though. That's the most common Japanese surname. Uh, Yoshida is a relatively common Japanese surname. That doesn't ring a bell though. Uh, Fujimori, but obviously that's, he's a different thing. Yeah, that's very different. But still a Japanese surname. Takahashi, like. Isn't that the main character in Altered Carbon? Don't know, actually. Um, I, I'm getting like 1% of pull towards Yoshida as opposed to something else. Sure. That's more than I have. So We're going to say Yoshida and we're going to lock that in just to cut off our losses before we get canceled by ourselves. <laughs> All right. I, I do have something to say about the most common Japanese name thing, but I will hold off on that until Joe has a chance. Okay. Yeah, he was he was interned during World War II, along with a lot of Japanese Americans. He was mayor of San Jose, uh, new secretary of Congress. In between, then he was actually a congressman. I, I remember my my dad was a uh, <laughs> was actually a uh, kind of a precinct captain, I think. So during the '84 election night, we were driving around through South San Jose, picking up lists and you know determining who had voted and stuff for. And it's kind of a bad night. But at the end, we did actually go to like the the San Jose headquarters and ran into him there. He had won, and so I remember I, I remember I got to shake his hand. I was like ten at the time, and he recently had the uh, airport in San Jose named after him. That's going to be Norm Mineta. Yeah. So, so actually, the cross party secretary in Obama's cabinet, I think, was also transportation, Ray LaHood, who had previously been my parents' local congressman in Springfield, Illinois. Nice. Didn't they do it with Bob Gates too? I think yeah. I think he was defense. Yeah, but oh, the, right, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. But of course, when I went to college in Stanford, as I said, I would have had to fly from Springfield, Illinois, to <laughs> the airport in San Jose. So I became very familiar with Norman Y. Mineta, San Jose International Airport. And yes, okay. that is the correct answer. Hi, this is Future Yogesh. I forgot during the taping session to come back to what I was going to say about Japanese surnames, but if you visit my blog, Facts of the Day, for September 12, 2019, you can read all about the subject. 
All right. So, did, did you want to take a break, Joe? Or uh... um, sorry, just real quick. I'm actually on a starting a diet, and as it is, I have to take breaks now. Real quick. Be right back. Okay. Let's leave it that. I'm hoping while Joe's gone, his dog comes back on screen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because he, I could see an animal moving around in the background. Yeah, he's got the dog, and then I you got your cat somewhere. Uh, have a cat. Yeah, I notice sometimes when editing them that there'll be like barks or meows in the background that I hadn't noticed during the taping. Well, we most I, I live directly next to the freight tracks, and we have largely managed to avoid that so far. Yeah, I think I did hear one once. There was one that went by, but luckily it was it was not one of the bad ones. Sometimes they choose to blow their horn while they are directly below me. <laughs> yeah, I remember you mentioning that during the me marriage match. But. Yep. All right. On the Duchamp question, Greg briefly pulled ahead by two tenths of a point, but then Joe retook the lead on the Mineta question. So at the end of this round, the scores are 16.1 Trevor, 20.2 Greg, 23.0 Joe. And now the point values go up once again for the final round, the super hard round. Six points for a steal, five points for a specialist question, three points for a bonus. And we'll begin with Greg and Joe to steal from Trevor. This one is not, in fact, a U.S.-linked question. <laughs> Korsakoff syndrome, associated with extreme loss of declarative memory, is often described as a consequence of chronic alcoholism. However, its proximate cause is a deficiency of which specific vitamin? Okay. Obviously, this round is too hard for the answer to be alcoholism. My guess is that it's somewhere in the B complex. And I think you're muted. I would agree. Okay. You would agree that you're muted? <laughs> Yes, and and also it's something in the bees. Yeah. Uh, I want to say... So go ahead. I'm I'm just thinking, you know, anything like Pedialyte, for instance, that's marketed as a hangover cure, all that's really doing is hydrating you and giving you B vitamins. Mm. For some reason, I'm thinking B12. Okay. I remember reading somewhere... That was also where I was leaning. Mm. And so now I'm wondering... How do we get ourselves away from that? Do we get or ourselves? should we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I want to see it. It like chronic alcoholism messes up with the metabolism of it somehow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I there's like a zillion bees out there. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I like one and two as well, and I'm wondering if that's mm. just because of echoes of twelve. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm like imagining the number. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't just, know. Do you want to just lock in on B12? Yeah, let's do it. Boxcars. Yeah, B12. All right, Trevor? Okay, I think, or I'm pretty sure they're on the right track of it being a B vitamin. I think B1 deficiency is more associated with beriberi. Then B2 would be A riboflavinosis. B3, I think pellagra. Oh, B9 is folic acid. That's more to do with, well, issues in pregnancy. I've heard of Korsakoff syndrome. I think it's sometimes, or more commonly called Korsakoff encephalopathy. don't think it's B7, biotin. I have the sneaking suspicion that it is associated with one of the lower B vitamins, but couldn't say for sure. I think I'm actually going to go with vitamin B5. All right. Yeah. So your your memory was slightly off. It's actually Wernicke's um, encephalopathy. Oh, yeah, which is also associated with it. Yeah. 
Right, and they together would form Korsakoff-Wernicke syndrome. But Korsakoff syndrome and Korsakoff-Wernicke syndrome, there actually are frequent symptoms of beriberi. Yeah, so, one. Yeah, your, your initial thought had right. been, you moved away from it. Is B12, <laughs> okay. is that what pernicious anemia is? Uh, the moment you started listing yeah. deficiencies like that, um, I, I was slapping myself for not doing that. I think it's one of the things associated with B12 deficiency. Okay. As well as osteomalacia. Mm. That rings a bell. Yeah, I think pernicious anemia is associated with B12 deficiency. Oh, hello. There, you got your wish, Greg. There's a dog on the screen, people. Yes. Uh, he is cute. Yeah, Skilo. All right. This is non time. <laughs> you have to wait. <laughs> he's, he's not starving. Trevor and Joe to steal from Greg now. 16th century Spanish priest Roy Lopez de Segura is the namesake of an opening taught to virtually all chess beginners. That opening is distinguished by white moving what specific piece on the third move? By specific piece, I mean that if there's more than one piece of this type, you have to specify which one. I mean, the number one opening move I know is, I think, the Queen's Gambit. Not not uncoincidentally, is also a Netflix miniseries. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know how um, that goes. Mm-hmm. I'd say maybe a knight. Yeah, like queen's knight or something. Yeah, it's like you move a piece, then yeah, black otherwise, moves a piece. Then otherwise, we'd have to figure out which pawn. And yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking it would be a knight, but unless it's a bishop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can't move on the first move. Anyway. Well, it would be the... Th- oh, it's the piece on the third move. Oh, Okay, yeah, so you that. can move like a pawn, oh, and then okay. and after that, it's uh, yeah. I want to say the queen's pawn, the pawn in front of the queen moves, and then the bishop goes in front of the queen or something like that. But it's, I may be making something up entirely. See. Trying to think where the positions are. Um, let's see, uh, yeah. I'm going to, I don't know, I think it'd be something on the queen side because you don't yeah. want to open up the king to any kind of attack early. Yeah. So. I'm thinking either queen's bishop or queen's knight. Yeah. It's from first principles. Let's see. I will guess queen's, I guess the knight. No, well, I don't know. No, we got to get the bishop out there. Yeah. The, knight, I'm, the knight's fine on his own. Yeah. I'm kind of leaning towards bishop now, but mm-hmm. I don't know if I have a justification for it mm. two pawns first <laughs> the dog is stealing a lot of focus here yes <laughs> the dog has a clock he's now perfectly <laughs> seated in between joe's face and his camera <laughs> and he is excited to be excited because it's dinner time I go by the sun <laughs> uh, uh yeah i would say queen uh I, I don't know queen's bishop uh sure let's go with that yeah, lock, in lock it in. Bishop. All right, yeah. And I mean, with this question, you have basically one in 16 chance just from blind guessing. So those are pretty good odds to begin with. Did they land on the right one, Greg? They didn't. Mm. Uh, so it's, right. the, the opening is you move your king pawn forward to, black does the same. You move your knight out to attack the pawn. He moves his knight out to protect the pawn. And then you take your king's bishop. Ah. and move it out to b4 and what makes it a roy lopez rather than like a joko piano is specifically moving that bishop to attack his knight so it's it's the king's bishop to b4 to b5 b5 yeah 
King's yeah. Bishop to b4, you get a weird look because it's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, that's, you know, as, as a kid learning chess, you know, you were taught to always begin with your king's pawn, not your queen's pawn. The queen's pawn is, is okay, but it's much rarer, I think, because, in fact, it's actually moving the queen's pawn that exposes your king, not the king's pawn. Ah. Because it would have to be attacked diagonally by a bishop. So this is why I stuck to RPGs. <laughs> yep. Final Fantasy VII. That's, <laughs> that's the extent. All right. Greg and Trevor now to steal from Joe. Establish in 1872, plant number three in Midtown San Jose was for many years the city's single biggest employer. At the time it was finally closed in 1999, the company that owned it, formerly the California Packing Corporation, or CalPAC, was known by what name? California Packing Corporation. Yep. CPC. And this is a company that started out, like, potentially before California was even a state. Oh, boy. Or no, California was a state for the Civil War. So, 1872. Um, It definitely was. But we're talking old. Packing Corporation could mean... Meat could mean yeah. storage, could mean mail, yeah, paper, uh, or it could just be delivery in general, packing something in a box and U-Haul. Yeah, I can't imagine a U-Haul factory though. Like I, I don't think they're perp- I don't think the trucks are purpose built. Uh, modular trucks. Yeah. Uh, packing. Be packing guns, I guess. I hear you do that in the States. I think you do it a bit more in Canada, actually. (laughs) What is going on here? San Jose. Trains of some kind. Yeah. You know. I'm I'm leaning towards Sega. I was going to say the Pony Express wasn't around for that long, was it? No, because basically the moment we figured out how to do horses... Someone just came along with a train. Yeah. Um, it did become Western Union, though, didn't it? Oh. Well, what would a... Yeah, I guess... What would a factory look like? Yeah. Well, even ignoring that, like, could Western yeah. Union really be employing... Yeah, true. What would a meat company look... You know, And also, why is the plant closing in 99? Like, boom economy. Yeah. Hmm. That's a good question. NATO? You know, could... Could this just be, they could be moving things to, like, a Maquiladora or something? Packing. Packing does make me think of paper, but... I can't think of a paper company. Well, I mean, Dunderman. Packard, I guess. Or, um, that's... uh, Hillroy, that's what I'm trying to think of. I feel like we should come up with a plausible-but-wrong answer and get out of the way so Joe can show off. Yeah. Because he's going to have this comfortably. Oh, yeah. What if it is meat? Something like Tyson or... What yeah. about something like... No, because the company that would have owned like a Levi's jeans factory would have been Levi's. Yeah. Um, I would think Tyson would have been more from the Midwest. That's my thought as well. Who does um, bubble wrap? I do not know. Cool. Because I, I do feel like if packing peanuts or bubble wrap or something, yeah. it's, it's like all of... Yeah, styrofoam. <laughs> you want to just say styrofoam? <laughs> um, like, I don't hate actually, that. that is if a, you're making all of it, the styrofoam for the U.S., it like, is a you're brand definitely... name. 
A brand name of whose? I, I don't know. A brand name of the it, California I, Packing Corporation? Sure. Could be. <laughs> Just because we got nothing better, yeah. we're going to... We're going to actually say styrofoam is our answer. And I, I wish that were the answer, because that would be a really fun question if it were. But uh, unfortunately, it is not. So I'll pass it to Joe. Okay. Yeah, I don't have this 100%, because there's two possibilities here I'm thinking of, because there are two employers here. They all Now, before Silicon Valley, San Jose used to be the Valley of Heart's Delight. There was a whole bunch of agricultural work there so most of it that's in the central valley now but yeah i mean when i was growing up in like the southern suburbs in the 80s i could see the farms one by one turning into office depots <laughs> but yeah there's two things here one company would have been it it started out as a like a i think a packing company uh eventually got into other mechanical stuff such as the bradley fighting vehicle uh that would be fmc I think it's the other one, though, because it was a big thing, because it was like a, a big employer and kind of the the swan song of, of more of the uh, that whole um, agricultural history of San Jose. I think it was that one, because that was, again, more of a big thing. I want to guess it's going to be they, they went into canning, and I'm guessing Del Monte. Is that the answer you're locking in? That's what I'm locking in, Del Monte. Yeah. So to answer Greg's question of why they're closing in 1999, it is precisely because of the boom economy, right? It's a transition from an agricultural economy to a tech one. And yeah, as uh, John Steinbeck taught us, the big packing companies, uh, the industry there is in canning, uh, canneries. But it's not sardine canneries like in Steinbeck's novel. It's fruit canneries. And this one was owned by Del Monte. Nice, John. Nicely done. Thanks. All right, and the lead has been seesawing back and forth between Greg and Joe, and now Joe has taken it back again. Next question will be Greg and Joe to steal from Trevor. The first four gold medals in men's Olympic ice hockey were won by Canada. The streak finally ended when the Canadian national team was upset by a British team made up largely of players who had grown up in Canada and had to settle for silver. Since this is a super hard round, I'm not going to ask you when it happened I'm going to ask you where it happened. What was the site of the Winter Olympics when that happened? What year is the first Winter Olympics? I think it was 24. Can you have a Winter Olympics without having ice hockey? That'd be pretty silly, right? Yeah. So 24, <laughs> 8, 32, and 36. Are yeah, any I mean, of those getting canceled for World War II? Uh, after 30, so it was the, uh, was the first four gold medals. So, yeah, after that, it would have been 1948. Where was that? So looking at maybe, yeah, 24, 28, 32, 36, 40 canceled, 44 canceled, 48. Was the Summer Olympics were in London then. I'm trying to remember the winter. Let's see. Cool. It's all you from this point. I, okay. I don't know any Winter Olympics prior to, like, other than Lake Placid, prior to 90. Right. Okay. So... Whew. I Chamonix had oh, a few. I'm sorry. Doesn't Chamonix have multiple? Yeah, that was in France. Yeah. So maybe still have been kind of knocked for a loop for that. I want to say, um, which one were we saying? Uh, Chamonix. Chamonix. Okay. Did Saint Moritz also Saint have Moritz. Them? That's what I was like. I think that's in Switzerland. And I they, think so as well. Yeah, and they not not a hundred percent sure, but I think so. Yeah. So what else is there? There's Grenoble, which was sixty eight. Lillehammer's way too late. 
Willhammer is 94. 60 is Squaw Valley. 32 is Lake Placid. Uh, Is that a host, Danny? uh, Yeah, in 88. In 2010, I think. But not before then. Anything wacky like Australia? Oh, where they have them, yeah. Six months later somewhere else. No, I don't think so. Or Wellington or South Africa. No, it's not South Africa. The wacky one was 76. It was, they all set to send it to Denver, and then they voted down the, the tax to pay for it. Uh, that's 64 is Innsbruck, which is Austria. And again, they were yeah. probably at that point knocked for a loop. Warsaw have any? In 48. Wait, for real? No, 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 no. Warsaw did not have any. Oh, no. okay. Sorry. Sorry, <laughs> I that was, thought you were saying, you're like, yeah, they hosted in 48. There in 48, question mark? <laughs> um but that's what we're looking at. Yeah, I I want to say I'm thinking places. Yeah, I mean it could be Chamonix, but based on the condition of of Europe, if we are looking at 48, and not 52, I would I would say Samaritz, just because Switzerland. Yeah, and just to be sure, Winter Olympics starting in 24 is something that you're really confident on. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Then. If they have ice hockey right away, then that does put us at 48. Yeah, if it was 36, that was in Germany, like Parchesgarden or something, I think. I oh. can't pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, it was the same year as the Berlin Summer Olympics. But I, I'm pretty sure 24 was the first Winter Olympics. I might be wrong, but I'm, then I guess. Then uh, let's do St. Moritz. Okay, I'm good St. with Moritz that. is our answer. Okay, lock it in. All right, locked in St. Moritz. Trevor? Or Sam Moritz, I think, yeah. Okay, um, so when, we, when uh, well, we, Canada, won the gold medal in 2002, that was ending a 50-year drought, which means oh, no. we would have won in 1952. So I would think it, the year we're talking about is 1956. Uh, trying to think what cities hosted Winter Olympics around then. It was Oslo and Helsinki in the 50s, but I think one of those was Summer Olympics. Then Melbourne hosted an Olympics, and part of me wants to say that it was winter. So I am actually going to go with Melbourne. Walk in. Okay. Yeah, I don't think the Winter Olympics have ever been held in the Southern Hemisphere because yeah. it would be the Summer Olympics. Yeah, Melbourne hosted the, the Summer Olympics that year, okay. actually. But yeah, so I, I have to apologize. Just fact-checking now. The question is factually accurate, but there's a twist in it that made it more complicated than I realized and made it even maybe super, super hard. The, the, the twist being that, so Joe is absolutely right. The first Winter Olympics were held in 1924. The first ice hockey tournament at the Olympics was actually held at the Summer Olympics for some yeah. reason. So they did in fact it did in fact debut in 1920. So your logic would have been just fine had 1924 been the first year, but you have to go back one Olympics and so we are now at 1936. And so this question was really just an excuse to give someone, either me or you, an excuse to say Garmisch Partenkirchen. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I guess uh mission accomplished. In the 50s it was more the USSR that was stymieing us. I suppose, yeah. Yeah. All right, Trevor and Joe now to steal from Greg. 
Yeah, yeah. Knives Out was fine, but my choice for the best full-length feature film in the mystery whodunit genre has to be 1973's The Last of Sheila, scripted by Stephen Sondheim in collaboration with What Man, who debuted Take Me to the World alongside Charmian Carr in Sondheim's only musical written for television, Evening Primrose. Okay. 1973, The Last of Sheila. Take Me to the World, was it? Yes. Take Me to the World, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, Sheila sounds very Australian, but but I don't know how true this would have been back then. (sighs) Uh, Weber? One of his early works. Could be. I don't know if it's 100% clear from the wording, but by debut, Take Me to the World, I mean performed. Okay. Hmm. So, singer. Okay, so Weber was not a performer. Uh, Well, maybe... Sorry? Who was singing in musicals back then? Like, Zero Mustel still around then? More or less. I mean, Elton John doing Tommy, so maybe it could be pop music. Paul McCartney, was was Cape Man his only one that he did? Or first one that he did? I'm not sure. Okay. That came out much later. Or that was Paul Simon, maybe. I'm getting mixed up. Uh... Hmm. Well, I feel like I should be uh, filling this uh, silence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it'd be good podcast. Good, good podcasting. Um, yeah. I don't know. Let's yeah. see McCartney, Elton John, Paul Simon, Frank Zappa. No. Uh, Elton John, maybe. Scripted. Uh, might have been a little early for for him. Um, to well, to write a whole thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Your song came out in 1970, so it was when he he was big in 73. But. Oh yeah, yeah, but it might I mean he was kind of doing you know yeah. rock and roll and not uh, yeah 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 getting into other genres. Um, genre. Genre. Oh. Um, might be a little late. Yeah, again for some other guys. <laughs> Michael Crawford. Yeah. Yeah. Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's done other stuff. He was. I'm sure he has. All right. What Let's that go stuff with... is, I can't say, but <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. things. Yeah. Sure. Okay, I'd go with that. Sure. sure. Lock it in, Michael Crawford. Right. Let's do that. Okay, locked in Michael Crawford, and and yeah, Cape Man was definitely Paul Simon. Again, to clarify, the book co-written by Sir Derek Walcott somehow. Um, all right, I'll uh, pass a question to Greg. So this one's beyond me, but let's see if I can do some guesswork here. Sound of Music, the movie, I think we said earlier, was early 60s. And Charmian Carr was still plausibly playing 16 going on 17. So she was probably like 22 or something. So here, Evening Primrose, a little bit later. Of course, we don't know if Take Me to the World is... uh, Unfortunately, that's... I think that's the one that I remember Sky is from, but I'm not sure. But this guy could be 40s. So, frequent Sondheim collaborators, that's right around the peak years, I think, for Len Cariou to be singing with him. You know, Sweeney Todd, Little Night Music, various other things. I think this is too early to be Mandy Patinkin. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else that really jumps out. Like, Zero Mostel is, yes, still in the picture, and he did work with Sondheim in, in Forum. Is there some kind of fun... I'm trying to think if any of, like... Well, Dean Jones. 
was Bobby and company, not that far away from then. Age isn't ridiculous. He's enough of an established, but I, I don't think of him as also writing. I'm trying to think if, if I can come up with any Sondheim actors who were also Sondheim collaborators, because people like, you know, Prince and, and Firth and stuff aren't actors. This is too early for Nathan Lane, who wasn't really a big Sondheim guy until the 90s anyway. Um, I'm going to lock in with, oh, God. I'm going to lock in with Dean Jones. Right. I'm surprised you think that George Firth wasn't an actor, because like, that's actually how I first knew him. He was, in oh, Blazing, really? he was in Blazing Saddles as one of the Johnsons. He was in an episode of The Odd Couple in the first season. He actually was a fairly prolific actor, but I did mention him earlier in the game to hopefully take him off the table. That, that was another reason that I yeah. thought of, yeah. Yeah, um, so this is some, I, I wondered if I underclued it, but I think it's just, you know, it's a hard question, but if you know kind of Sondheim's biography, maybe know, you know, what kind of people he was friends with, and this is someone, it's an actor you've all heard of, I think, but people don't remember his musical acting abilities, because he had one role early in his career that just overshadowed all of the others, even though he did a ton of other stuff. His name was Anthony Perkins. Hmm. All right, now, Greg and Trevor to steal from Joe. In 2016, Houston Chronicle sports writer Dale Robertson compiled a list of the 51 greatest Super Bowl moments. Whose name have I redacted from this excerpt from his write-up from the number one moment? With 310 left in the game, Cincinnati was leading 16-13 after Jim Brescia's 40-yard field goal. San Francisco had taken over first and 10 at its 8-yard line following a half-the-distance penalty on the kickoff return. Trying to settle his teammates down before they broke from the huddle, Montana turned to tackle Harris Barton and called his attention to a familiar face in the stands. Hey, he said, isn't that X? Super Joe then drove the 49ers 92 yards, rifling the winning 10-yard touchdown pass to Taylor with 34 seconds left. That does sound like a good moment. I don't know. So we're talking 80s or 90s here. I think Joe Montana, I think a bit earlier than that. Is he really? Or shows what I, I associate know. the 90s with Steve Young. Okay. In as far as I associate yeah, anything with anything in football. Who would be a really big like pop culture? Is this early enough to be like Cindy Crawford? Or sorry, is this late enough to be? I think Cindy Crawford would have been after this. Okay. Mickey Mouse, is this the origin of I'm going to Disneyland? Um, um, not the Virgin Mary. That'd be pretty great. Huh. Um, famous California. What's Richard Nixon doing? Um, I feel like like yeah, that's in the category of like socket to me, where like we would know it if it was Richard Nixon. Yeah. Yeah, like laughing yeah right yeah so like i wouldn't think it would be a president but michael jackson yeah i'm still leaning earlier or well i guess the jackson five were around but john connery that would be great um would anyone mind if i gave one brief hint i mean you're trying to stave off me naming people from a set of people Like that's yeah. the level of specificity okay. I'm at here. Yeah. All right. Let me narrow down then. What Canadian person is X? Shania Twain. Uh, uh, but again, you think it's earlier than that. Yeah. Uh, I feel like my dad's a big 49ers fan. I'm sure he'd know. Was your dad in the stands for this game and was he pointed out? 
Uh, your dad one, the answer one sec, I'll question. give him a call. Yeah, exactly. Dad, uh, are you the answer to the question I'm currently facing? Yeah. Uh, uh, Canadians. Uh, Pierre Trudeau. Um, well, what Canadian would spur them on to greatness? Besides all of us. What about like Canadian music acts from yeah. the late 70s? Yeah, or like Gordon Lightfoot. I would be comfortable saying Gordon Lightfoot just for what a ridiculous answer this would be. Yeah. If, if, hey, isn't that Gordon Lightfoot <laughs> is a famous Super Bowl moment? <laughs> yeah. Who else? <laughs> Leonard Cohen. Uh, are, are there yeah. Canadian John supermodels Mitchell. from the era? I do not know. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Mitchell. Uh, I mean, equally the idea of pointing out Joni Mitchell in the crowd yeah. is a quality <laughs> thing. But I mean... Gordon Lightfoot seems as good as anything to me. <laughs> we are literally locking in Gordon yeah. Lightfoot. Sure. All right. That is, that is probably the right level of randomness you should be going for, but it's not the correct answer. Joe? Okay. Yeah. When when I heard the first part of it, I thought he was going to be asking who had caught the catch because this was during you know, the height of Jerry Rice's powers, but it was actually his co-wide receiver, John Taylor. But then they got into it. And uh, <clears throat> it's kind of funny. I... Prior to the pandemic, me and my partner would cosplay a lot, and I've learned not to uh, wear ears, because if I have anything on that has, like, fur ears on top, then inevitably somebody asks if I'm a, uh iconic character that was actually played by this person, and then I have to say, no, no, I'm not, because I'm not. And uh, that ionic kind of character, apparently I, my silhouette resembles, would, of course, be the uh, redoubtable barf from Spaceballs, oh. and this would be... Uh, celebrity in question would be John Candy. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to deduce. It's just one of the things that's part of Super Bowl lore mm. now. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I think, well, the catch usually refers to a play in a playoff game, actually, which was caught by Dwight Clark. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's more this, this one, this was the drive, I think. And then the catch at the end was, yeah. Right. But this yeah. Is lore, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, John Candy is correct. And I think that extends your lead. I'll get back to the scoring in a second. Let's just read the next question, Greg and Joe. And we're in the final cycle now. So each of you will just get one more specialist question and two more chances to steal. Greg and Joe to steal from Trevor. The most common index used to summarize species diversity in environmental science is based on a formula originally developed by what man to quantify the entropy in strings of text? This polymath described theoretically unbreakable cipher in his 1949 paper, Communication Theory of Secrecy Systems, and calculated a lower bound of the game tree complexity of chess in his 1950 paper, Programming a Computer for Playing Chess, which was way ahead of its time in 1950. But those massive achievements are small potatoes compared to his foundational, A Mathematical Theory of Communication, which created the entire modern discipline now known as information theory. I don't hate von Neumann for this. I think it's somebody else because I've been meaning to watch. There's like a Netflix special or it was a Netflix or Amazon Prime. There's a documentary on them. Okay. I I think uh, it is Shannon. Yeah, yeah, Shannon? Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon. That's what that's what popped up in my head. And I know he's got stuff with entropy. Yeah. yeah. I I think I'm I'm thinking it's. Uh, I think it's him because that's the right. I mean, von Neumann is also the right area. So is. is, is but the moment Shannon, yeah. I like that better. Yeah, it's more communication rather than. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm gonna go with like, that then. Let's do it. We're saying okay. Shannon. Locked oh, in. Shannon. Yeah. Yeah. Trevor wasn't holding a poker face for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Von uh, Neumann actually, I think, 
recommended that he use the word entropy analogously to Clausius entropy okay. because of the similar uh, mathematics behind it. Well, Trevor, can you give any of the expanded names by which the Shannon diversity index is? I, I cannot. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because I think the, the formula, I think, was developed with Norbert Wiener, but it's... So so Shannon's famous book was published in collaboration with Warren Weaver, so it's it's called either the Shannon Wiener or Shannon Weaver. I'm not sure if the second one is only just because of people misremembering Wiener's name, but uh, either way. All right. Trevor and Joe now to steal from Greg. A key element of the so-called Sophia Town Renaissance of the 1950s, what magazine with a brief, punchy four-letter name provided an important outlet? And by the way, punchy is not a clue. <laughs> what magazine with a brief, punchy four-letter name provided an important outlet for the work of black South African journalists, photographers, and fiction writers during the apartheid era? In what is almost certainly a coincidence, its name is also the title of the 1976 film starring Ken Norton that served as a sequel to Mandingo. Hmm. Oh boy. So, he's saying it's not Punch Magazine. <laughs> it's four letters, uh, yeah. fist? No. He said, he said Punchy is not a ah, okay. pun. Yeah, I didn't want you to think it was a boxing pun or something like that. Which I probably Ah, would. so it's kick. Okay, no. Um, <laughs> okay. Hmm. Okay. Magazine. Trying to think of what a sequel might be. Uh, yeah, the Mandingo. Yeah. Yeah. Got nothing there. Okay. Well, let's see. Four letters. Four letters. Uh, anti, like anti-apartheid. Salt. Salt. Salt yeah. of the earth. Yeah. That could go for. Um. Four um, magazine. Four. Gold. <laughs> Hope. All is whiz tied. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. Mm. Yeah, could be any of those. Salt, gold, Thor, iron. Coal. Is there much coal there? Well, I guess if there's diamond. Uranium. Duff, buff, coal, gold. I mean... I don't feel as though listing more things is going to yeah. help us put it down <laughs> by uh, picking from one of what we have. Yeah. I, yeah. Salt? Sure. sure. Why not? Okay. Salt. Lock it in, salt. All right. Yeah, this is probably the hardest question of the game, but Greg kind of has to get it to have any chance of winning, so I will pass it to him now. Nope. <laughs> Um, which is, is not answer? an answer, by the okay. way. <laughs> um, I, I was thinking something like shout, and so I was trying to come up with like something that's like shout, but four letters. So I guess I'm going to say yell, and I'm locking okay. that in, even though it's wrong. I can see the logic, though. Yeah, and this is something that makes a lot of noise. It was called drum. Uh, mm. Yeah. All right, and now the final question of the game. As I've mentioned, said many times, the order of placement's already determined, but this is really about pride, so that shouldn't matter. You should be willing to, to play for pride. Yeah. I have no pride. So. <laughs> that ship sailed. Yeah, a long time ago. Greg and Trevor now to steal from Joe. A major influence on modern astronomy guides, the star charts published in 1952's The Stars, A New Way to See Them, were drawn by what man, who is even better remembered today for a series of children's books published between 1941 and 1966? Well, theory. 
Well, when I hear star chart, my first thought is the Hertzsprung Russell diagram, but that's, I don't that's think that's related to this. Yeah. Uh, children's books. Maurice Sendak. Um, uh, Michael Dr. Bond. Seuss. Who? Michael Bond. He did Paddington Bear. Oh. I don't know when he was active. A.A. A. Milne. Although, I don't uh, think... Milne is, is... He's way early. earlier, yeah, yeah. I would put him in, like, the 1900s, yeah. the decade. Yeah. Maybe 1910s. Uh, yeah. No, I think you're right. Is Ruled Doll writing, then? Yeah, but a series of children's yeah, books, yeah, to yeah, me, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think it is one concrete yeah, series. Valid. Was Paddington a series? I would say so. Okay. There's a sequel to Where the Wild Things Are, but I wouldn't describe it as a yeah, series. No. I don't think Shel Silverstein had any series. Agreed. Uh, Lemony Snicket is, of course, much later. Uh, Do we know who did the Boxcar Children? That was... I always confuse them. One would want to say Anne Martin. It might have been Gertrude oh. Chandler. Or Gertrude but Martin. either way, you're deciding between two women, so we can roll that out. Yeah, yeah. Um, something like Magic Treehouse or... yeah. Magic school bus is way or too Or magic late. school bus, but yeah, the, those both. Magic Treehouse actually wouldn't be that far off, but I don't, I don't know that one. Not a yeah. Um, huh. books. Yeah. What about C.S. Lewis? Really, ooh, it's actually a good thought. Isn't isn't Narnia like? I wonder yeah. if it's inspired by. I don't hate that at all. Yeah, actually. no, because twenty-five years to get through yeah. seven, seven books. Yeah, it started in the 40s and start of Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Pevensies are sent to their... Right, and that's what I'm worried about. Uncles like, during World, the Second World that was War. During the I think Blitz. it was during the Blitz, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I like that I, idea. I do not hate this at all. Yeah. And he was enough of... Yeah. yeah you you want to do enough it? Of a nerd. Uh, C.S. Lewis? Yeah. yeah, sure. We're locking that in. All right, yeah, I was wondering if, if someone would go with C.S. Lewis because, I mean, the dates don't quite match up, but, I mean, they don't, they're don't they not that far off. They're, it is mid-century, and it is a series of children's books. So, yeah, that's a, a good guess, but not correct. So I'll pass it to Joe. A brief editorial. I absolutely love the hell out of this book. You should buy this book. You should buy this book for any people you know, any kids you have, any cousins or anything. You should cost people in the street, offer to buy them this book. So I should is- read the book? Yes. <laughs> no, I got this book when I was like six, and I still have a copy of it, and it's awesome. And yes, the stars the way you see them is great. It's great introduction. It makes constellations look like constellations and not like hieroglyphs. Uh, no offense to the ancient Egyptians. It, it's 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 clear and it's it is awesome. Anyway, <clears throat> the end of editorial focusing now the uh yeah it was written by uh a man he actually has another i think there's a documentary on him still in amazon prime how he escaped from um i think it was netherlands uh right at the start of world war ii darkest peru i was gonna give up Uh, no he he (laughs) literally biked his way across france with his wife to get to a uh you know escape ship eventually make it to u.s but he his major work there would have been uh curious george Oh. So that is H.A. Ray. Yeah, I think maybe, you know, one possible way, and is if it is an illustrator, you might have been thinking of books that are primarily picture books, right? Because, I mean, now the books are published, they're co-credited to him and his wife. Um, and Margarita. generally, the, 
yeah, the labor was divided. He did the illustrations and she did the stories and text. And yeah, they did uh, bike out of, I think, Paris in World War II carrying the manuscript of the, well, technically the first Curious George book. Curious George had previously appeared as a supporting character in a, another book, but the first book that was centered on Curious George. Yeah, so um, yeah, H.A. Ray is absolutely correct. I apologize for getting spittle all over your podcast, Yogesh. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's fine. Yeah. Um, so it looks like that would be, let's see, final score of 16.1 Trevor, 31.2 Greg, 44.0 Joe. And we'll now just wrap it up by letting each of you have a chance to say anything that you want. As long as it's not too long or offensive, it'll be kept in. It can be about the game, about the world at large, about something you want to plug or about really anything that's on your mind. And we'll start with Joe. Uh, I'm not sure if I was clear before, but you should get a copy of The Stars and New Way to see them, as many as you can. Uh, while you're at it, throw in uh, Doriel's Greek myths and Norse myths. Those were foundations of my youth. As I said in the beginning, it's, uh, it was kind of a tough day with Alex Trebek, but we all remember him. I got to meet him once at a taping, and he's, he's well-remembered. I know people have been on the show, and they love him. Hopefully, it'll move forward. Other than that... Well, hopefully this uh, sees the new year. If it's if it's out by 2021, uh, <laughs> uh, hopefully the the new year will will be uh, will fill fulfill its promise. So that's it. All right. Yeah. So if you if you want to raise your kids to win a million dollars on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, that's what you should have them read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Greg. Uh, I guess something, two things that are vaguely political. I guess, but first of all, remain indoors. Like. Mm. Seriously, like, don't go hang out with large groups of people indoors. Like, remain indoors by yourself, get exercise, stay healthy, etc. Because the vaccine for coronavirus is not going to be showing up anytime in the next week. So, and I say this as I'm in the middle of a hotspot county right now. But also, just politics doesn't stop just because the election has happened. So, even on Inauguration Day, get active. Try to do things in smaller races you, you can't just think about politics as a thing that happens once every four years i think that's the train you were talking about yeah mm-hmm. yeah all right but yeah no good advice although if you do go outdoors and happen to see my parents say hi to them and then tell them to go back indoors <laughs> all right and uh, trevor uh, well i don't think i have anything quite so eloquent to say but this was a lot of fun, Yogesh. Thanks for having me on. Semi-congratulations to America. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can read between the lines there. And yeah, wear a mask, wash your hands, distance. Yeah, so as I explained in, in, I think, a couple episodes ago, when I say not offensive, things that um, portray Republicans and or Trump in a negative light will not be considered offensive. <laughs> 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 All right. Okay. So I've kept you guys a bit over time. And I know, I mean, Joe and Trevor, I'll be seeing in uh, about 40 minutes anyway. So For uh, what? OQL. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this has been episode three of season two of Recreational Thinking with Yoga Shrout. Thanks for listening.